Matthew Johnson, PhD, is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University. And if you know anything about Johns Hopkins, they do a lot of research on psychedelic medicine. And Matthew Johnson is right in the center of so much of that research. But not only psychedelic medicine, research on the effects of all types of drugs, hard drugs, soft drugs, medium drugs, all the different types of drugs. And we get into everything on this podcast. It was one of my favorite conversations of the year. And I can't wait to present to you Matthew Johnson. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Onnit. Now, everybody's heard me talk about Onnit. Why? Because I created Onnit largely as a solution to everything that I've wanted to have available for my own life. So it's just expanding the toolbox of all of the tools that are available. I actually had somebody ask me recently, they're saying, what do you do with all of the different supplements and biohacking techniques and everything that you're aware of? How do you fit it all in? And my explanation was really, look, I've spent the time to get familiar with all of the different tools, all of the different supplements, all of the foods, all of the practices. And I don't do everything every single day. That would be crazy. But I know which tool to apply to which situation to bring out the total human optimization that I'm looking for in that given moment. So that's how I do it. And on it is a huge indelible part of this process for me. And I know it will be for you. So check out everything we have on it.com slash Aubrey for 10% off always. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. Next up, we have Helix Sleep. So you guys might've heard me talk about Helix Sleep before. But it's something that is continually talked about at the Marcus home because my wife, Vailana, wants to replace every single mattress in every room of every place that we've ever stayed with the Helix mattress. She really loves them that much. Vailana is not alone in her opinion. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. I love it. It's a great mattress. It's got a 10 or 15 year warranty. You can try it out 100 nights risk free. It doesn't have all the bullshit that a normal mattress comes with. And also you get to customize which type of mattress that you want depending on what type of sleep that is normal for you. So you can take actually a sleep quiz over at Helix Sleep and check that out. So ultimately, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for all the AMP listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash AMP. Once again, helixsleep.com slash AMP for $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. And lastly, we have Four Visions Market. So I don't talk about it too often, but this is the perfect podcast for me to be doing a read about Hape. Hape is a tobacco snuff with admixture plants from local tribes in Brazil, Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador. And you actually use an applicator device called the Caripe, and you blast this tobacco snuff up your nose. And when it goes into your nose, it has a bit of a bite to it, a bit of a sting, but it opens up your clarity of mind and consciousness. I think Don Howard would call things like this a clarigen, and then acts as what the Quechua people would call a chakaruna. Now, Four Visions Market is doing Hape the very best way. They have incredible relationships with the local tribes who have learned this traditional art of creating Hape from their ancestors. They're weaving in their own prayers and offering these prayers for all of us to take into our daily life. It is a powerful meditative practice. It's a powerful way to create state change. And of course, tobacco contains nicotine. You have to be mindful. Nicotine is an addictive drug. 
There's no denying that. But the use of it in this sacred way is also something far beyond just the materialist, reductionist identification of hape with nicotine. But nonetheless, it's worth mentioning. So if you're interested, Four Visions Market is doing this the very best. They have some of my favorite hape right now. I'm alternating between the Jaguar hape and the Immunity hape, but you'll find something that really resonates with you. They also have the tools and all of the sacred artifacts that you might be interested to really bring your hape practice into your life. So if you're interested, go to fourvisionsmarket.com. The code is AMP, A-M-P, for 15% off your first order. Once again, go to fourvisionsmarket.com, code word AMP, for 15% off your first order. And of course, with any nicotine product, there comes a warning. This product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. So if you're going to dance with any plant, any chemical, or any substance at all, make sure you're driving the ship and the plant, chemical, or substance isn't driving you. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Matthew Johnson. Matthew, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, so am I. Thanks, Aubrey. Yeah, absolutely. So One of the things I want to get into, and of course, we have an audience for most of the listeners. We've talked about psychedelics for a long time, especially from an experiential standpoint. You know, I remember first getting on Joe Rogan's podcast in 2010, even before my podcast was really going, telling about my first ayahuasca experiences. And I've been just talking openly about my experiences with some of the greatest healers and then my own personal journeys and vision quests and and all of that. So the audience should have a fairly good understanding of the psychedelic experience. And, you know, what I'm curious about and what I really love about getting with a researcher like yourself is to start to understand the mechanisms a little bit better. And one of the things that I'm particularly excited about is the breadth of knowledge that you have about multiple different psychedelic compounds Mm -hmm. and try to merge a deeper understanding of what's happening in the brain with what's happening experientially because it's all too easy to either go one side or the other to just it's all energy medicine it's not dose dependent doesn't matter have a thimble of ayahuasca or have two cups well a beautiful sentiment <laughs> but i will fucking tell you a thimble is different than two cups i don't care what the energy's like and uh-huh. there's certain times where two grams of mushrooms feels like 10 grams and sometimes where it feels like did i take something you know like so there is there is some truth to all of this but i think really the the magic is in merging both it's the handshake of the experience and the actual science and mechanisms and also the exciting research that's coming out for treating you know actual conditions and and making a really positive impact on the world yeah yeah i i I like that way to put things uh it reminds me of uh terence mckenna one of his quotes uh if you're not seeing the aliens yet you just need to like up the dose. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like, two cups, that yeah, might be some weak tea. You know? Right, right. Like, yeah, yeah. There is. <laughs> I mean, dose is a real thing. It's a real thing. No matter thing. what else is involved, the number of molecules like pounding those receptors mm-hmm. makes a big difference. It's a real like, thing. It's not the only thing, yeah. but it's a real thing. Right. And it's a yes and, it's a yes and kind of world. And I think people get lost in, in this. Other people in the same way say, oh, it's just a drug. It's all in your head. Yes. And maybe you're tapped into something that's beyond right. what's just in your head or maybe your head is also in that you know inextricably part of everything anyway right. so you're actually saying the same fucking thing yeah everything we know is in our head <laughs> right yeah it, that's the that's the first hermetic principle <laughs> right. from the kabbalion and that hermetic wisdom that comes 
as the legend says, from Hermes Trismegistus, who's known as Thoth in Egypt, and then all the way through Hermes in, in you know, Greek and Roman, the first principle is all is mind, the universe is mental, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's an important thing to understand and grapple with, and, and not even talking about the ontological correctness of this, because we're all in, in the realm of linguistics, but to understand everything as the same substrate Yes. Call it mind. Fine. Call it right. whatever you want. But to understand everything is participatory in the same substrate is pretty important when we're talking about these medicines. Yeah. Yeah. That's the framework I like to have. I mean, including, you know, when you're in the psychedelic realm, you know, one of the cool things is it just bridges so everything, you know, disciplines of science, you know, like sociology, the humanities, philosophy, you know, art. And one of the things I like to say is, you know, just you know, often you butt up against the supernatural, and I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, a good amount of what we call the supernatural now, we might be calling natural in 100 years, 5 years, right? 5,000 years. It's like, what would they have called magic? Could they only have called magic 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, most of the stuff we're doing now? So just this presumption that to, to keep your boundaries open enough, you know, not infinitely open, but like... You know, in terms of taking things seriously and evaluating them, don't just sort of dismiss things because you don't have a, a current mechanistic understanding of it. You know, it may be that that's what we're going to discover. Coming up. Yeah, maybe one next the, week. <laughs> one of the things that Dr. Zach Bush shared uh, recently at Arcadia in, in the speech was that right now there's a categorical and systemic dismissal of magic and miracle because he's worked in the clinic for a long time. All right. Someone has stage four cancer, tumors and all kinds of things. And all of a sudden, something shifts in their mind. Some experience happens, some mindset shift. It all goes away. And what you write on the chart, spontaneous remission, right? (laughs) Like this is some statistical anomaly. And he's like, yeah, maybe. Or that was a miracle. Yeah. Like that was a miracle. Right. (laughs) But you can't write on the chart, miracle. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like there's a there's a name to exclude and kind of even the placebo effect itself. Oh, right. It's like yeah, let's just make this 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 annoying thing that we have to account for in clinical <laughs> trials. They're like, oh no, this is the magic of thought changing matter. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you control for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That, you know, control it out we're of the not way. Interested this in annoying that, yeah. thing called the placebo effect that's proving over and over again right. that thought changes that we matter. Have this miraculous, like, right. Yeah. You know, another, gosh, you know, another Terrence Mc, McKenna quote. You know, it's like, you know, science is big about, you know, dismissing miracles, but like, you know, the prerequisite is that you got to allow us like one miracle. You know, if you just, you know, go back in time, it's like, Everything that we know came out of nothing for no reason instantly, <laughs> out of nothing into everything. That's the, and it's like the, the rate limit of miracles. Like, can you come up with a bigger miracle than that? Like, yeah, that is the truly. definition. Everything, every miracle you can name is within that. Right. You know, truly. so it's like, so we got to be humble when we <laughs> dismiss mirror, you know, something someone might describe as a miracle. Doesn't mean you should give up looking for you know, uh, observable mechanisms that might exp- mediate that miracle. Mm. But it also doesn't mean it's not a miracle. If yeah. you've had a kid overcome a serious disease or something, it's like, yeah, you might explain the mechanisms. It's still a, a miracle. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and sometimes you just might not be able to explain right. the mechanisms. And and yeah. at that point, don't just cast it aside. That's the point where I think everybody should look and, and almost bow 
yeah and be like bow to the mystery and mm-hmm. i think that's one thing that psychedelics offer is like you have this humbling appreciation for the mystery where you say whoa there is something far greater than i could ever even grasp and i'm going to look through my tiny little peephole of a window of my own perception and just get a glimpse of the mystery yeah you know and i think it's just getting i've said like it's people it seems like people getting close to that mystery and observing it no matter what answers they have no matter what interpretation they take away doesn't matter it's just that engagement with the mystery and i think about it in the context of our daily lives compared to maybe you know 100 years ago 1000 years ago 10000 it's like where every night you looked up at the stars and were mm. like what the you know like mm-hmm. now like so many of us, when's the last time you've really done, you know, it's like mm-hmm. this kind of the, the, the kind of the miracle is kind of like, you know, sucked out of, you know, the world for us, that yeah. kind of like exposure to nature. So it's like people just being confronted with it. If they come out with a completely naturalistic explanation, you know, you know, that's like, well, look at the amazing nature of the physical world, even at that level, it's like jaw dropping if it's some religious interpretation, other spiritual, no matter what it is, it seems like there's something with just grappling with the big questions. Mm. That if you don't even think about the good, no matter what your answer is, if you don't think about the big questions, something's going to go off. Yeah, Like we're not designed to be divorced from those big questions, it seems. And this is, I think, part of the problem with you know, I was a philosophy major in college, right? And I loved grappling with the big questions, but you have to weed through a lot of really annoying philosophy to get to the good stuff, (laughs) right? And most people are like, oh, I fucking hate philosophy class. And I get Uh it because they're not actually engaging people. It's more memorizing what some other philosopher said and comparing that with the memorization of what another philosopher said and not actually getting you to philosophize and actually getting you to grapple with the questions until you get to higher level you know, courses yeah. and better teachers. And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, now let's figure this out together. Here's some theories. What do you think about this? What do you think? And I mm-hmm. think that teaching that early, that was a major cornerstone of education for in ancient Greece for a long time. It was like, how do you get your mind to grapple with questions? Whereas right now it's about how do you memorize what other people right. have grappled with? And science seems to be the same way. I don't remember a single time in in high school in like chemistry or physics where it was more than, I mean, I, you know, learned a good amount and appreciate it, but it's like you in chemistry class, it's just like you're following the cookbook. Yeah. there It wasn't really the level of like, you know, before this was in a cookbook, someone figured out like, what do we do to figure something out? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we figure out how to turn something into something else? Like someone had to do that. And so there's, you just don't get, much if any of that sort of like this is what the science actually is science isn't following a recipe sure you need to do that for science but the re- most important science is what you did before there was ever a recipe you came right. up with the recipe and then like yeah if it's science other people should be able to follow that and get roughly the same results um but like you're saying with philosophy same thing it's like just it's not about memorizing facts mm. it's about doing but philosophizing yeah doing the doing the thing same with poetry right like you can read a bunch of poetry that you can hardly understand or you can write poetry and i've you know one of the greatest poets alive right now i believe is a guy named nq his name's adam and i've watched him lead poetry workshops 
where everybody, like 90% of people would be like, I can't write poetry. Well, they're thinking they have to write in iambic pentameter, Shakespearean <laughs> sonnet, or some other form or structure. It's like, no, just share the truth of an emotional yeah. thing that you feel, and it's fucking poetry. And watching people actually express poetry and be like, holy shit, I didn't know I could do this. And over yeah. and over and over again, every single person in the workshop being able to access that, all of a sudden their whole frame of poetry changes. And I think there's that invitation for all of the different arts and sciences to be like, this isn't, this isn't what you've been told about it. There's a frontier here where you can explore and, and actually train your brain and also give you access to discovery and awe right. and wonder. And that very much reminds me of sort of like stuff we deal with every day in society these days. It's like, you know, what does trust the science mean? Does mm -hmm. it mean trust this, these conclusions that are hopefully informed by science that you've been told science has come up with? Like, no, science is that. When you start to question something and think for yourself and then apply reasoning, apply, well, I've seen this, there's some data here. What about this experience? Like you're doing science, <laughs> you, you know, like yeah. believe, just believing in what someone tells you is really in some sense the antithesis of science. I mean, you yeah. should listen, but if it doesn't square with your experience or from date, your own observations of data, then, you know, like what is science really? It is the process, but it's philosophy questions. really, you know, yeah. the discipline it's not of asking philosophers. Questions. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And so as Being you said, curious. you know, trusting trusting a conclusion is not trusting is not trusting the science, it's trusting a conclusion which you can. Sure, yeah. sure, like we don't and have time. You take the source to, into account. Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh -huh. And and that's fine, but actually yeah. science itself is a living, breathing thing. And I think it's also it's almost like biblical thinking as well. Like trust the Bible. That book was written right. 2000 years yeah, ago it's and it's given. spot on. Well, all right, well, look at it now. Does it make sense? Yeah. You know, do we want to stone the person who committed adultery? No, we don't. It needs to evolve. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's like there's ways in which we can understand that all of these conclusions may have been relevant for a certain time or may have been, you know, looked through a certain perspective, but continually always questioning and looking and looking for the counter thesis to the, to the thesis. Yeah, it's all provisional. We're never going to fully capture reality it's all a model yeah so it's all provisional and yeah we need to stay open one of the things that must be exciting for you is there's been probably it's probably one of the most exciting frontiers to study psychedelic medicine because that was actually stopped yeah. for a long period until finally the gates kind of got opened a bit you know mostly recently where now it feels like people can study most of these compounds in yeah. a clinical setting and get actual access to the medicines in a standardized way that you can actually conduct these experiments and that which really are the frontier of not only studying the compound but studying the psyche studying the body's ability to heal study right. it's giving us access to so many things so it must be incredibly exciting for you to be doing science in the frontier where you're really in fresh powder in a lot of these cases. Yeah, and, and to see that transition from like 2004 when I first started doing psychedelic science to now, it's just, it, you can't even imagine. Like, it just, you know, the shifting, you know, landscape. Um, you know, folks legitimately, and folks that really cared about my future saying, gosh, Matt, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, how are you ever going to get any funding in this? What's the future in this? Like, yeah. 
you know, what is this? Is this really, is this just wishful thinking? Um, and to now, you know, it's like, I probably spend most of my time on the other side of like, you know, like, no, there, it's not like a magic pill. You're not, not everyone yeah, automatically that's, that's... <laughs> gets better. So I spend more of my time and there are, there are risks, you know, be smart, you know? Um, but yeah, now it's at least being taken seriously, you know, which I don't know of another case in science where like for decades, things were put on complete deep freeze. It's like, yeah. I mean, could you, I mean. I mean, stopping in the late 60s, early 70s, it's like, okay, I think we've developed a few things in science since then. It's like, you know, most of our understanding of the brain has evolved, you know, dramatically since mm -hmm. then. Um, just our understanding of pharmacology and behavioral science and everything that's relevant. Um, you know, like, where would we be now had those breaks not put on, if they weren't put on early where on? Where would the world be Yeah. Now? And, and it's it's a real travesty. Like if we were going to look from the ultimate bird's eye perspective of everything, like this was a catastrophic decision and, and unfounded too, really, from a scientific perspective, as we're seeing the safety data on all of these compounds actually come through. Like, all right, I understand. Maybe we should put a deep freeze on gain of function research for certain viruses. Yes. Like, <laughs> chill, everybody. Maybe right. yeah. like CRISPR technology. I don't I don't know. I'm mean, this is not my fucking field to talk about that, but it's like this is risky. We don't want to get strange mutations out from a lab leak in the wild that can kill hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Right. That's not what we're talking about when you're studying MDMA right. or you're studying psilocybin, right? It's not the same thing. I mean, at this, all. this stuff is, I often say it's treated like nuclear material. <laughs> right. you know? And I agree, right. there are certain things in categories that like we really, I mean, gosh, I remember like early on in, in you know, nuclear, you know, in, in the Manhattan Project, you know, there was this idea, it's like, they weren't 100% sure that this just wouldn't start a, a, a catastrophic chain. We were just like, whatever, like blow up the atmosphere of the planet or something, you know? Yeah, but meanwhile, they're like, point yeah, that... fuck it, go for it. And right. they're like, but should we study LSD? No. Yeah. <laughs> Put that on freeze. Now, you could construct an argument that like sounds kind of naive. I don't know that like, oh, it's just going to warp the minds of so many young people. It's going to collapse society. But gosh, I mean, there are things like, you know, you start talking about like, you know, pathogen, pathogens that can cause pandemics and, you know, nuclear weapons where the fallout, like, do we really know? Like, you know, can we really model what a nuclear winter is going to look like? You know, it's just like, we know it's going to hurt, kill a, a lot of people. Right. It's just, you know, millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions. It's like, so there are things that are, are in that category of like, yeah, because of the implications on humanity so widely, like we, it would, it's appropriate to put the brakes to say yep. you can't do that or if you do this it has to be highly regulated and certain things you can't do or certain things you can but this i mean this is not in that category not to say that there shouldn't be any regulation not sure. that there should you know i mean there's institutional review boards and the fda and whatnot we, you know but just this idea that no experimentation can be allowed for decades the only experimentation was you know high school kids you know just like Introducing it to each other in college, you know, and other sure, people, but sure. understandably, like that's that's where things. When you define something as illegal and the only, and not just illegal, but illicit, you know, and there's a Sasha Shulgin would uh, point out the difference between these things. You know, just illicit. It's like, regardless of the legality, it is societally frowned upon. Mm -hmm. 
Like in some ways, you know, I guess you consider cannabis, regardless of the state, still illicit in the sense of like, you know, it's not looked at the way as you know, it's like alcohol and tobacco. It's 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 still frowned, you know, upon. It's so and- interesting how this government, which is like has a magic wand, which bestows some some this is legal or not legal, deeply impacts people's understanding of what the actual risk reward cost you know right. cost benefit analysis of this thing is you know and, and yeah. we've seen that with cannabis where it's like in a place where it's legal now people are kind of like relaxed about it whereas right. before you were a druggie and you're a hippie and yeah. you're a pothead and and now they're now you'll, you'll get somebody in their 60s or like a you know my wife's well, I don't want to put my wife's family on blast, but you know, you know, but like whoever, whoever right. will just be like the most mainstream. Yeah, I'll have some. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, like sure. But then something that's about to be legal but isn't quite legal yet, like psilocybin, like oh no, it's illegal. Yeah. It's a drug. Like, what do you mean? Right. You know, it's like it's all it's if you really just look at it and think for it, and and that's why I'm so grateful for the science that's already happened. Is even those things that aren't quite legal yet, there's still this foundation of no this is the actual research yeah you know and and johns hopkins has done such a good job not only on the clinical side but also the experiential side Mm -hmm. i mean were you a part of that study that was showing that like a certain high percentage i forget the numbers used to have them off the cuff but a certain high percentage said that their psilocybin journey was their top life experience yeah yeah you drop into that study yeah 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 so we did um I arrived at the when that very first study was was wrapping up, but then I initiated, drafted, you know, led the second study, which is a file looking at different doses. But same thing, like not treating a disorder, just saying we're going to take, you know, highly functional adults who are in and in those studies they were spiritual seekers broadly defined. So, and given the claims about you know religious, spiritual, what have you, broadly defined, these kind of you know transcendental. Again, there's a million words, different languages you could wrap around it, these extraordinary experiences, which touch on the big questions. It's like, okay, let's get some p- different people that have like, you know, had some experience in those realms. Like they've tried a bunch of meditation and different mm-hmm. services and like, you name, you know, sweat lodge or whatever their particular like tradition is. And, um, and the results were extraordinary. About a third, and this was, has been replicated in multiple studies, but about a third will say it was the most, um, meaningful and spiritually significant experience of their life. This is not like laying on a couch in a hospital in Baltimore. <laughs> I mean, like, have people seen The Wire? I mean, that really says something, you know, like the context. It's not yeah, like, and, sure. yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, and then, even you know, and sometimes people be like, well, yeah, there's that, you know, yeah, my marriage, I don't want to, God, I feel bad for putting that down to number two. So, yeah, so it's also interesting to say, like, what are the, okay, What's is it the in the psychology? top five? And then you get like two thirds. Yeah. You know, which is really impressive. You know, it's like, yeah, maybe it's not one of the. Well, know. I mean, I had kids that were born. I got married. Yeah. You know? well, why I the got, kids are going to kill me if I can't I, like... fill out one, number one here, <laughs> yeah. but really secretly. Off so, record, <laughs> off record. It's number really one. a one, but if my wife asks, it's. But yeah, it's like, you know, it's like most people, like, you know, with prepper, and it's not random. You know, it's not just taking a big dose, uh, but it's taking a it is, and it is a big dose. To be clear, it's a heroic dose. Um, in that case, thirty milligrams body weight adjusted. So if you're above seventy kilograms, about one hundred and fifty pounds, and 
a higher dose of like whatever 200 plus pounds you could get you know up to you know 50 you know, milligrams or so so this is like 30 milligrams would be about what terence mckenna would call the, the heroic dose mm-hmm. about five dried grams of psilocybe cubensis so this is mm-hmm. a high dose so at that yeah at that dose you know you can get you know not everybody but two-thirds of the people will say this was one of the top most meaningful experiences in my life and you could schedule that for next wednesday <laughs> like and that's the thing and research has yeah. been done with these experience and we don't take these kind of call it what you will quantum uh, change experiences these like mystical experiences research and it's not a popular area of research because it's so hard to really you, know, you can't bring it in it's hard to bring it into the lab and really study and psychologists have been like myself have been obsessed with understanding behavior change for you know 100 years but you know, we're used to incremental behavior change and we forget that the world is filled with these cases where people say well there was me before this experience and there was me after this experience and and the world's literature and mythology is filled with this you know Saul initiation the Rangers, rituals ebenezer scrooge yeah. ebenezer rituals it's like now you're a man yeah or the you know you know, uh, yeah, bar mitzvah or man, woman. You know, it's and now a vision all of quest, these rituals like have whatever the tradition. Hollow and shallow, so we don't have that actually baked in our culture. But right. you know, you think of like three hundred, the wolf in the winter snow. You know, it's like the young king to be Leonidas goes out in the cold in the fucking snow, and this is a fictionalized story. But he's he goes out there to confront the wild of the wilderness. This is a yeah. traditional vision quest, and yeah. come back. He leaves as a boy and comes back as a man. We used to have this baked in to our own culture where things would happen where you were dramatically different from one place to another. And at least for me, you know, this was, that was my initiation. That changed my life forever, right? Mm -hmm. I had a vision quest initiation with psilocybin and actually, and MDMA Wow. Yeah. If with a with a shaman who was actually, you know, he was she was a part of the kind of Stan Groff crew and kind of oh, went yeah. underground and that uh-huh. she was unbelievably skilled. And she took me out to the mountains of New Mexico. I stayed in a yurt, I tended my fire, and you know, I had the tea of the psilocybin tea and a capsule of probably, you know, one point hundred milligrams of MDMA. I don't know at that point what it mm-hmm. was, but I remember it was a combination of both and I it completely changed my life forever i was Mm. not the same man that walked into the hut uh, not the same boy that walked into that hut as the one that walked out you know two days later wow like it was it was one of those different things that the aubrey that everybody knows who's listening would not be the same aubrey without that initiation and it's not the only way it's not the only way to do it but it's one of the few ways that we can safely do this now that really could work Mm-hmm. And it's we're seeing it on the as you said on the medical side as well, like these initiatory transcendental experiences shifting everything. Three right. sessions of MDMA curing PTSD in a yeah. high percentage of people. Right, it's a whole new model. Yeah, and one advantage of these techniques, and I should be clear, yeah, everything has risks, and I never encourage any drug use. And by that, I mean caffeine. You name it. To Likewise, that, you know, it's a it, very personal choice, right, and that's important. Right, there should, are risks. We should probably say that at least three times more during this podcast because <laughs> it's it every, important. Like, three seconds, <laughs> yeah, I, for sure. What I do, but like, but but what I say is, relatively speaking, and this is what got my colleague David Nutt um, uh, uh, removed as the official, like um, essentially the drugs are in Great Britain years ago when he said, 
uh, MDMA is like even like dirty street ecstasy, okay, which, you know, a lot of times as we know, including research I've done is not MDMA or it's, you know, mixed with plenty of impurities, even dirty street ex ecstasy, no question, far safer than horseback riding. He wrote this <laughs> tongue in cheek article, he called it equacy, like he took the... The, the roots for like, you know, horseback riding uh -huh. and anyway, made an ecstasy type to any, made this very kind of humorous article about there's this new horrible drug it's called. And he gave the same statistics for horseback riding. And you read this thing and you're like, this is like, oh my God, Superman died like five yeah. years ago, like, you know, whatever, because of this, like sure. back then, this is years ago he wrote this, but like, he's right. It's like, oh, and it's like all these horrible statistics. And it's like, who would allow this? You know, I just want to make the point, like when we're talking about you know, compared to traditional cultures and, and just lots of traditional techniques like, okay, go out and don't eat for weeks on end. Go out in the desert where you have to get your own water. Like, you might die. Like, there's a good chance. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, certain number of people don't make it. Like, yep. encounters with wild animals. It's like, in the right setting, these techniques, they have their risk, but they are incredibly safe. I mean, yeah. it, psilocybin is so much safer than going skiing. And again, I'm not encouraging people to, to do any of this. I'm not encouraging people to go skiing, <laughs> you know, or take psilocybin. I take psilocybin when I go skiing, actually. Like, <laughs> so, I, so I'm really, I'm really running the risk profile high up. But I swear to you, I'm a way better fucking skier. I, I become the mountain and the snow and as I'm skiing. And what kind of dose? Like, uh, usually like uh, between a gram and a gram and a half. So on okay, the lower sort of standard, on the like lower size, standard but not a microdose. No, that's a real and dose. Again, yeah, that's we a, have yeah. to be we have to be really careful here because a gram, gram and a half of what they call the penis envy strain. Oh yeah, fuck oh, off. God. No way. Easily I'm like five, I'm just gonna melt three into to the, five grams. I'm gonna of, melt into yeah. the chair and be going up and down and up and down <laughs> on the lift, going like I'm not getting off. No way, I'm getting off. Don't make me get off. Uh -huh. You know, so it's uh yeah, for sure. But that these experiences that I've had, and of course I have a lot of experience, and this is not a recommendation to do what I do, but there's it's interesting all of the biases that we mm -hmm. have about this. Like, oh, you're not gonna be able to function or operate. I'm fucking telling you, I shred when I have a little psilocybin. And I know fighters who might who take like a little bit more than a microdose before they fight. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of people who experiment with these different compounds and actually get better get more aware yeah. get more tuned into their environment and all of these ideas it's just like hold them lightly some of them may be right there could be psychotic breaks i've seen that happen mm -hmm. you know and of course that's why maps has the zendo project mm -hmm. and why it's important to always be prepared because this can trigger episodes that are scary and dangerous and so to be very mindful but also let's hold all of this propaganda that we've been told let's hold this lightly yeah and 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 just think about things relatively mm -hmm. think about the risks of uh, of, of swimming pools and yeah. and and all manner of, of of sport you know and and all of yeah. the pharmaceutical drugs that uh, that exist yes yes you know like all Thank of the you, other yeah. drugs were like oh yeah whatever take as you know benzos would all ssris oh. take them go for it you know and then there's people you know like Suicidality is a side effect, a known mm -hmm. side effect of certain pharmaceutical compounds. Yeah. Homicidality is a side effect of certain, I think it was the, what was the smoking cessation? Yeah, Varenicline, Chantix. Chantix. Brand name. Yeah. Homicidality yeah. is a side effect. What and the I was, fuck? Yeah, I was hearing anecdotes about that even, you know, before the, the black box warning and that, yeah, like 
just these weird stories that you wonder, has that made it into any medical file? Like someone that you, you know, a relative's, co-worker's, uh, sister, this type of thing. Right. But yeah, like, killed his son. Like, was you know, it's like, you just wonder how much of this is actually getting, you know, you know, getting into the analyses. But, but yeah, these things have, you know, pharmaceuticals. It's, I mean, that's a good point because it's like in, in the context of medicine, you know, not just, you know, having, you know, extreme uh, ex- experiences, but it's all risk benefit ratio. Mm-hmm. I mean, we give drugs that just we know causes cause motor damage, like say for, you know, uh, schizophrenia. But it, sometimes that's the only thing that stops someone from having an absolutely hellish sure. life with the voices that, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, we do our best. And it's like, what's the yeah, what's the path forward? It's risk benefit. You yeah, know, and it's just like looking this might at have that risks, science. That yeah. science actually looking at everything without the biases, without the narratives, without all the stories, and actually listening to people who have experiences. You know, recently I just had Aaron Rodgers on the podcast, and he's uh, you know, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, won a Super Bowl, last two seasons has been the MVP of the league. Right. And so a lot of ideas about what would happen if you did psychedelics. Well, mm. and I told this story and you know, I encourage people to listen to the podcast with him when telling the story. But the first time I met him, he listened to me do a podcast with his girlfriend at the time, Danica Patrick, and finished the podcast and he pulls me aside and, and he's like, I wanna tell you about one of the best days of my life. And I was thinking, oh, fucking Super Bowl, I don't know, like national championship, MVP something. And I was figuring like some football related thing. He's oh, like, yeah. Triumph. I took yep. mushrooms for the first time <laughs> on the beach and I merged with, with I merged with the ocean and it was one of the best days of my life. And no championship ring. <laughs> like, yeah, what? yeah. And yeah. I was like, damn, that's yeah. fucking cool. And it goes to your same study, right? It's yeah. like so a life full of accolades and a life yeah. full of accomplishments and amazing things, the draft day and the Super Bowl and all this. And and he's like and I also wonder if for him it wasn't like actually I was the best day, but <laughs> you know I can't say I can't say that, you know. But and so that like kind of started to form this initial friendship, and and then he did ayahuasca for the first time prior to the 2020 season, and people think oh you can't do that or it'll tell you to stop playing football because football is stupid. It'll tell you all of these things, and then he goes out and he wins the MVP of the league two years in a row after that, right? And so finally like he's you know he's telling this story and. And I think I'm just celebrate him for the courage to share that story because it's important to change people's perceptions to say mm-hmm. like, no, this isn't always going to tell you to, to stop doing what you're doing and right. do something different or make you worse at what you do. It'll tell you that if he needs to tell you that because it's yeah. you telling yourself that. It's some knowing that you have inside that this is unlocking. It's not like it has an agenda for you. Right. It's you telling you what to do. And if you want to play football better, I'll tell you how to do that. Right. I've never seen a single person move to a cave in India to, to, you know, to meditate right. the rest of the I've never seen that. I'm not saying it has never happened, but, you and know. people are so afraid of that. Right. That's like one of these ideas that have, that has permeated mm-hmm. culture. And spouses and, and partners. Uh, that's one of the things that struck me over the years that oftentimes a spouse or partner will have this concern of someone going to do a study with psilocybin. And they're like, I've read about this stuff. It can cause personality change, it can, which is true. But, but you know, one could hear that and think all kinds of like things. Um, uh, and, you know, yeah, they're going to go 
they're going to divorce me. They're going to move to some cave in India and sell, you know, sell our house. And I'm going to be <laughs> yeah, stuck with a right. mortgage like that. <laughs> Never seen that, you know, not saying that that, you know, of course, this is people without like tons of experience that are, you know, having a, a controlled, you know, prepared, integrated experience, you know, so you know, can't say that's never happened. But yeah, some of the fears are just, you know, they're out there, you know, and right. we don't, we just don't see them. Yeah, yeah, there's a disproportionate amount of actual, actual stories versus the narrative story that it's mm-hmm. going to happen. And I think that's what it's about. It's not saying this has never happened or it never will or never could, but it's just kind of starting to get everything in, in a more appropriate field of value. Yeah. So you understand that this is the realm of possibility. This is on the extreme aberrant outlier case. Yeah, it is It is possible. Yeah. But that would come from, and I think the important thing that I always stress, that would come from you having that truly deep desire. And the fact that the, the reality that you would think about moving to a cave in India if you hadn't already thought about right. it and already been drawn about it. And as you close your eyes before you're going to bed, you're already thinking like, I really wish I was a cave in India. To think that that's going to happen just because yeah. the psychedelics are going to tell you some message? No, it doesn't work that way. It's a handshake between your consciousness and a greater consciousness, and both are communicating to each other. That's why it works. Yeah. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not like you go to the guru and the guru doesn't listen to you and just tells you what he wants to tell you. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not fucking Zoltar, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Great reference. It's, yeah. it's a different thing. I often think that 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 when people get the best results, they have that orientation. Of, there's an agency there. Like when someone says, oh, yeah, I did the session, and now I know what psilocybin does to you. Now I know what psilocybin is like. It's like, yeah, but no. The bigger story is like it, when someone really gets – you know, slam, like you get the full Monty experience and they're just, their whole soul is shattered. And like, they're just like, oh my God, like mm-hmm. uh, it's, this is what I learned about myself. This is what I learned about the nature of the universe. This is what I learned mm-hmm. about human. It's not about, this is what this particular compound does. Yeah, And uh, you know, that's a part of it, but it really fits with the old ad, you know, it's like, it's just the key that unlocks th- the door. And, but what's behind that door, it's like, that's you, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, so it, it's, uh, People have different ways to say it, you know, whether it's just a, you know, chemical, you know, during a monkey wrench that into their brain that kind of allows somehow, you know, greater access to their own psyche, you know, whether it's some, you know, a, a larger consciousness or what have you. It could be stated in many, many different ways, but there's, when it really seems to work, it, it seems like there's some sense of it's something about you. Mm. It's something about you in relationship to the other, in relationship to the universe. You, you know, if one is religiously inclined, God, mm-hmm. language again shifts, but like it's that you're at the center of it and that's where the learning happens. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's like, it's not just like about what this drug does. It's about like what I am and what am I here to do? Yeah. And sometimes like people just have that context effect where they, it's like they just keep going to the, they're backing up and they're getting that larger and larger and larger frame. It's like they've gone through their whole life, habituated and kind of narrowed, narrowed, narrowed vision. And they're like, what do I really want to do? What's really important to me? What's, right. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I like to look at it is the the body 
is like the repository of all kinds of information and data and also possibility and proclivity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people can take it down the astrological route or you can take it down the DNA route. You can take it down all of these. But ultimately, we're we're a bunch of information that has been stored and we're a bunch of possibility, our own blueprint of what we could be physically, our blueprint of what we could be mentally and all of the ways, the factors, everything we've learned has Mm -hmm. created this kind of body of information. And then the brain is more like a receiver that's available to download Mm -hmm. new information and interact and then also upload and share that information that you experience. And it's this kind of like two-way receiver. And these psychedelics tend to tune the receiver to a different Mm -hmm. frequency that allows access to more information from the body. So more that you're able to bring into awareness and then more information from that which is outside of the body, that which is in the collective, because we're all participating, as I said, all is mind, the universe is mental, whatever substrate you want to call it, love, God, whatever. As a participatory agent, it's just opening up the brain to receive, you know, Mm -hmm. different information. It's kind of like, what Huxley was saying about how it just, the brain is a cognitive filtering device. Reducing valve, yeah. yeah reducing mm-hmm. valve, and this opens up the opens up the Venetian blinds and we get a little bit more information, Yeah, both internally and externally. And that's a, you know, I, I've always loved that metaphor because it's like, it, it, it also demonstrates why like, yeah, like there are times when you shouldn't use, like you're trying to cross the street. You don't want those blinds all the way open so that like you can't no. navigate across the road. I was like, you know, it's, you know, someone could be, you know, you know, tripping on acid shrooms in the, you know, ayahuasca, whatever, you know, it's like in a busy city and they're just like staring into their hand. It's like, my God, that's a miracle. Just like the hand is a miracle. And then oh, like yeah. that Mack truck there. comes and yeah. runs you. It's like, well, that's, you know, from a certain perspective, that's a miracle too. But like, you know, you really die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, least, I mean, you know, and, and so, this is not, this is not just like, this happens. <laughs> This happens. I took a heroic dose of mushrooms out in California. It's a beautiful setting in the day. Uh-huh. And I started looking at the way my skin wrinkled overneath my knuck- over my knuckles and mm-hmm. how it formed this pattern from all of the times that my hand is clasped and uh. unclasped. And I was like, holy shit, this is the record of everything I've uh-huh. grabbed ever in my life. Millions of and times. And I was like, wow. Yes. And this was 20 <laughs> minutes of me doing that. Not appropriate for certain situations <laughs> right. to be doing right. that. But when you've carved out the right setting where exactly. it's safe to have yeah. that deep, deep contemplation, um, yeah. <laughs> and then you'll never look at your hand the same again. Yeah. You're going to be like, oh, thank you, hand. You know, like. And the ripple effects, like, you know, maybe that's like affords a little more empathy when you're passing the construction workers and they're like, man, they're. They're working right. their asses off and it's 103 degrees here in Austin. And right. They're working with their hands all day. You know, it's just it's like, yeah, you can spread that kind of like that empathy. It's like, and everyone has a hand and there's billions of hands. Like, you know? Has that been something, empathy, empathy seems like something that so, would be so important right now because we're so polarized, we're so divisive in our culture. Yeah. And I don't want to say that for everybody because there's a lot of people who are holding a really beautiful unity consciousness as well. So I don't mm-hmm. want to also exacerbate the issue by claiming that this is the only thing that's happening because there's also a counter right. movement to real inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of polarization. Has anybody studied the, you know, empathy? Because this is important. Like obviously treating depression, all of these things, this is what makes a drug legal. And we got to help ourselves really first before we can serve others. I have an organization called Fit for Service, the idea in order to be of service, you have to be fit for service. I get all that. But also 
we need to you know be good gardeners and stewards of society as a whole and empathy for others is like pretty fucking important if we're going to make it through this next stretch and i know that uh, mdma has been called an empathogen you prefer intactogen and i i like that differentiation but i wonder if that's been studied has anybody run a study on empathy yeah it and this is, you know, these are, as you can imagine, you know, hard things to study. What sure. it looks like MDMA does in some sense, and it's been critiqued in terms of whether you can really call it an, an a pathogen for this reason, or it's a, or, or, you know, calling into question whether it has reliable effects on empathy is that it seems that people, it, it's, it's not like they're more accurate. Like when you're looking at photos, you know, the photos where the, the person is like, that's an angry face, the type of thing we have in common with the chimps and whatnot. It's sure. like, that's a smile. That's an angry face. And there's tasks where you, you, you identify those emotions. And then, you know, on the number of my, the milliseconds that it takes you to, uh, recognize that emotion on these photos and how quickly they can flash, you know, and still allow you to process that's some measure it's thought of, 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 of empathy. And so with measures like that, it would kind it, of, but it doesn't mean it, the, it doesn't bring it doesn't, the feeling. It just brings right. the awareness. Right. And, and how does that to relate to if you saw someone like really asking you for help on the side of the street in a tough spot, like whether you're really going to help them, I'm, I'm with you there. But even with that measure, it seems like MDMA more like gave people rose-colored glasses. It's sort of like they actually misinterpreted. They interpreted some of the negative emotions as positive mm. emotions. He's and just going so, through his process and it's beautiful. <laughs> right. <laughs> and know? so maybe in a, in some sense it's functional and in certain situations, also you don't want to be a sucker and, you know, like, uh, you know, get, you know, hoodwinked into something. Uh, but, but yeah, like it, it, it may be now. Of course, that's that's MDMA. We know that. Um, so there's some question about whether it's at least reliably affords it. If if you define empathy as 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 really honing in, meeting that person where they're at, and understanding their emotion, rather than you know um, assuming that there's something more positive mm -hmm. going on than there really is. Of course, we could get very philosophical. Maybe you're seeing a deeper layer <laughs> and seeing the positivity underneath. Yeah. We, but psilocybin, one of the things that Again, isn't like exactly empathy, but it's related. We knew no. There are these interesting tasks that you do on a computer that kind of uh, simulate this game of uh, like just playing ball with like you know just I'm, three people playing ball. I'm throwing to you, and you're throwing to me, and there's this other guy, and like we're just leaving him out. You know, so this is like oh, me, like yeah. the last cyber, person to get picked ball. when I was in grammar school. It was like, yeah, 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 it's like social exclusion task is what it's called. Uh -huh. so, and, and yeah, like in cyber, you know, like where you model that, where it's really not other two people and that's being modeled by the computer. We're just seeing how you respond to being that out person. So it seems like, you know, psilocybin allows people to deal with, you know, they're less likely to be hurt by being the out person. Uh -huh. Doesn't sound that dramatic in the scheme of things, but, you know, the research is in its infancy. Well, what are, I what, mean, what are, all the, what are all the shooters, what's the commonality between all of these? Not mm, all, I can't say all, That's, that would be a mistaken. But, but you would think, But yeah, many, but like, many, it seems like they were a loner, they were outcast, they were bullied, yes, they, were, they yes. felt separate from, they were playing this big social game of cyberball in high school, which we've all participated in to some mm -hmm. degree, whether we're conscious of it or not, either as victim or perpetrator or sometimes often both. Yeah. You know, and then the walls go up. Yep. And then yep. To, the and ability to deal with that and the ability to understand that and the ability to understand on the other side, I think, 
I think it's feel, it just feels to me like it's a it's a big area that could maybe even just talking to you like that it hasn't quite nothing has quite nailed it. You know, oh, from yeah. from a I scientific don't... standpoint, it seems right. like if we could really find and and drive the right study to show this, which would have to be some kind of subjective measure of how you feel when you looked at somebody who is mm. experiencing something hard. Because I remember the first time, so of course, my very first psychedelic experience was, as I said, MDMA and psilocybin. Um, and that was, it's a blended experience, so it was its own thing. But the first time I did MDMA by itself, I was in Australia with my girlfriend at the time. And I remember we walked by, and my heart's just blasted open. And it was like, oh my God, this is the best feeling I've ever felt in my life. Walking down the street and I watched a girlfriend was having a fight with her boyfriend and boyfriend, you know, said something mean and she just sat down and it wasn't like a violent fight or anything, but she just sat down and started crying. And I, I remember walking by her and I was like, oh my God, like I could feel her pain in such a way that it yeah. was like, I could just feel every, every bit of it. Yeah. You know? And, and that experience is normally I would just walk by and be like, wow, that's some drama, you know, like poor girl, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't let it land. Yeah. And it seems like there's a, there's a, an importance for that, for, for dealing with people's fear or their pain or their struggle. Cause we yeah. can get all too, you know, all too complacent with this, I don't need to feel what what everybody else is feeling. I think it's important to feel it. Yeah, I I agree. And it's kind of hard to imagine an issue with the world where that's not kind of at the core. That's at least not a part of it. You know, just kind of just labeling anybody like someone from another culture, someone from another political team or a different idea on a certain issue, you know, just like to just to throw them away. I mean, it seems like we're really easy to do. It's easy to do that these days. Yeah. Just like you just like trash someone on Twitter, you know, and just try to cancel somebody over, you know, something minor. Mm-hmm. Just to really go for the jugular, and it really it, it kind of takes this sort of like you can't do that. Like if you had that experience for that lady, if you were feeling that, even if there's something, le- you know, some legitimate beef, it's like it's hard to imagine someone going that far. In so many cases, if they have some sense of like, that's a human, mm. you know, like, you know, to just really kind of contemplate that, like, you know, then you, I don't know, you know, speaking for myself, it's like, you know, a situation like that, like, oh my God, how many times have I made, you know, a partner, you know, cry? Like, you know, how many yeah. times have I been insensitive? And it's like, totally, how, like, this is the world, like, this is we're all. You know, that, and sometimes people with psychedelics do have these profound experiences where they just feel this kind of universal, like, suffering, and mm-hmm. and they kind of empathize with it, and, like, it just, it's it's hard, you know, to, to just take that in, like, the amount of suffering that we cause each other, but then, you know, like, you know, to move away with that with some, if, if one is left with more empathy, like, yeah. what a... What an incredible thing. Now, although I have to say, I've seen so many examples where, you know, psychedelic fans, psychedelic aficionados, psychedelic research, you name it. Like, I don't see much evidence that psychedelics in general are making people better people or Mm. or more ethical Mm. people. Or at least it's so noisy Mm -hmm. that that's a tough correlation to pick up on, if you get what I'm saying. Like, because there's... You know, so many people that are just like in, in, in where it seems like, oh, 
maybe too many psychedelic experiences or the wrong type of psychedelic experiences have magnified the ego, if you want to put it that way. Sure. And and so it's 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 a really I don't know. I, I, I that's something I'm really curious about in the future. Can we really use these as technologies? Not that it's the only thing. I'm with you. It's like, but it could it play some role yeah. in kind of training people. I mean, Tim Leary back in the day was interested. Like, could we reform serious associate, you know, you know, sociopaths like people who have committed murder and whatnot? And this is the stand, uh, the Concord Prison experiment, and. Uh, turns out there were some methodological flaws in that study, as Rick Doblin has, has found retrospectively. But nonetheless, this idea of like, you know, could you really use this as a technology to reform people that are really struggling? Like, what if we catch one of these young people somehow the signs that would go on to be a shooter? And could there be a crash course of... And it may not be psychedelics, but something. Or maybe psychedelics yeah. are part of it. But like, can we really have a powerful technology... And I don't know, like it wouldn't, I, I think I, my gut tells me it's not psych, certainly not psychedelics alone. It would have to be a very judicious way of using well, them. Well, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, like, May, like yeah. MAPS is doing, you know, right. I, it yeah. seems like so much of the perpetration of harm on other people comes from trauma. Yeah. Right. Really. I mean, like where it's like hurt people hurt people. I yeah. think that's a truism that's actually true. Right. You know, where there's some deep pain that's in there and showing the the efficacy of MDMA in treating trauma, I think that's one definite way that I think we could reduce a lot of the issues. And then there's also potentially, you know, potentially that other side of, of allowing someone to step into empathy. Like I could imagine, you know, if, if I was going to study something and I just had a magic wand and, <laughs> and I'm not, I would say like, what would be interesting to me would be, let's say a murderer, you know, and they have to listen to, often in court, they have mm. to listen to the victim's family express what they're going to express. Yeah. But if they created that situation where that murderer was on, I don't know, give them a, give them a whack of a dose, maybe right. 200 milligrams of MDMA, yeah. and like really had to hear those tears with their heart blasted open, like, what happens then? How is that experience? You know, how does that land and how does that shift when they actually can't block it off from their yeah. own pain and their own callous and their own bias and their all of this other stuff like would that land in a different way where actually you could trust them to be rehabilitated yeah. and we'd move from purely a punitive model to actually a rehabilitative model. right right that's such an interesting question i mean because there are these stories i'm sure you heard of where and i'm sure it's like the small minority of cases where like that person, you know, without the MDMA, where that yeah. person's, and then it's like this: mur these murder, you know, the the the, mur the victim's parents or whatever. There's a number of these cases I remember over the years, like, and they just become they like visit the person once a month and they become fast friends and like, you know, just like these amazing things. You're like, my God, like on all sides, human heart. Yeah. it's like on the victim's family side to like have that radical forgiveness and openness, and on the other person's side to like to really make it. I mean, they can never correct what they've done, but to like tr to transform. And so if that's one in a thousand, because I know these things happen and, you know, it's like in the victims or the, 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 the accused is probably like rarely open enough. I mean, they're scared for their life. They're like, maybe you know, the natural human defenses, whatever the situation they felt justified or just at the individual level or just society was so like whatever mean to them. And it's like, 
you know, they don't give a shit. And, you know, at whatever level it is, the guards are up. But like, what if you could like just knock them down in that one? Yeah. And you had to do it the whole life, but that one moment yep. where then the floodgates come in, it's like, Don't those type of experiences where you can't come back from, it's not like you can forget that. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting, really interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to, you know, I got to, you know, I wouldn't want to force the accused. We got to, you know, like course, to, have to be take some substance. Consent. You get to weird yeah. places there with civil liberties, but yeah, like if yeah. someone, and a lot of people would probably be open to it, but like. Just at the level of shit, get me high before <laughs> like right. this. This is hell. Like I'm about <laughs> yeah, to go yeah, to prison. Yeah. Rest of my, yeah. I'll take whatever. <laughs> like, sounds it's, fun. I mean, and... it's it's interesting to explore. I think as our as we transition into the more beautiful world, where I truly optimistically believe we're headed, and I believe the psychedelic renaissance is playing a bigger part in that than people understand. The algorithms look bleak if you mm -hmm. don't account for some of these changes that are happening on the fundamental consciousness level because of this psychedelic renaissance, all the people who are going to be going in to treat their depression or treat their PTSD or treat their, you know, addiction or treat this thing. And all of a the sudden their heart opens up and they have contact with the divine and see themselves as part of a interconnected web and see everybody as them living a different life. Oh, and by the way, they help their depression or their anxiety and their thing. <laughs> but the but the side effects are so potent yeah. in the positive way, potentially. And this is not, again, universal. But in the aggregate, I think we're going to see some big, big shifts that are going to come that are going to start to change the algorithm quite significantly. Yeah, that's I, I love these stories. And, and, and often from the the... I do this line of research where we use psilocybin to help people quit smoking. So, you know, ju just tobacco smoke, you know, which as many people know is as serious addiction as, as, as they come, you know, mm -hmm. but at, so at the, another level, it's like, oh yeah, it's just quitting smoking. You know, like you're not yeah. doing anything that's going to get you locked up in prison and your, your spouse probably hasn't left you over it. Um, even though it's, you know, hardcore addiction, but like, you know, even though, you know, we warn people, it's like, this isn't just about quitting smoking. Like you yeah. undergo a high dose psilocybin session. It's like, don't be surprised if you revisit trauma that you had in your past, that you, you wrestle with deep seated psychological issues, maybe just existential fear, like, or anything like that thing deep down in the basement of your mind that you don't want to share with anyone that you're guilty about, that you're afraid of, what have you like that thing's going to get out, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, or very, it could not necessarily, but like, dude, don't count on that thing staying put. Yeah, like we I are just, blasting I just out the them. basement. I like. can just see them like giving their account to the to you researchers and giving this long report of their mystical experience, unio mystico, you know, their apotheosis with the divine. And then you being like, uh, what do you feel about smoking? They're like, oh yeah, fuck that. That's crazy. I don't want to do that anyways. Right. But it's like as like this thing, like, yeah. oh yeah, duh. Like I'm not gonna do that anymore. But let me tell you more about the I was fucking right. speaking to these beings. Like I right. have to tell you about this. Right. We de we definitely see that. And even though we try our best, to, it's almost like just doing the study. It's like setting yourself up for that. Even though we let yeah. people know, still they're like it. Just like really, as you said it, like that could be a a quote from somebody. They're like, dude, really? Like you're gonna <laughs> ask me about smoking? <laughs> you know? But 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 often they're like, yeah, oh yeah, totally. And I'm I'm done smoking. And how the hell? Why would I want to smoke with like yeah life whatever. is far too magical yeah yeah it's like yeah at, at so many levels one just distra like dude this is so interesting like how like like how could I even be interested in smoking or just like life priorities like 
I don't know, why would I want to do that? You know, just, and it just seems like things like solidify. Um, but, you know, sometimes you get folks where they still struggle, so they haven't quit smoking, but yet you see these like amazing life transformations where they say, oh gosh, I'm getting along with my parents better than I ever have, you know? And mm -hmm. it's like, and we got to record this person as a failure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. But no one's a failure to be clear, but you know, as not a success, you know. Sure, because that's, that's, that's the nature of the outcome you're looking for. Yeah. I want to talk about, so I want to talk a little bit about mechanism of action, because mm -hmm. I think this is interesting. So there's a lot of compounds, psychedelics and otherwise, that are actually not really so much psychedelics, but a lot of drugs and medicines too, that are interacting with on the neurotransmitter level. Mm -hmm. So MDMA, for example, serotonin system, dominantly. Right. Little, yeah. a, little action with the dopamine system. Right, right, right. Primarily serotonin, right. And cocaine, mostly Primarily, dopamine. yeah, dopamine, Bro. yeah, noradrenaline, but yeah, mainly, yeah, dopamine yeah. doing the magic. And then alcohol, GHB, mostly GABA, right? Right, correct, yep. So yep. that's and same thing with all the benzos, Ativan, uh -huh. or not Vicodin, it's an opioid, but uh, you know, uh, you know, Valium, mm -hmm. Librium, et cetera, Xanax. Yeah, the uh, cholinergic, like acetylcholine, upregulating that. That was actually so our flagship product for on it, Alpha Brain. Right, right. Was you know really actually targeting that as a primary mm -hmm. neurotransmitter, certainly. Um, oh yeah. And we did that with you know different cholinergic compounds, uh, acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, and you know different mm -hmm. things that come from Huperzia serrata, which is this club moss in China, and some uh -huh. cool things like uh, alpha-GPC and yeah. different ways to upregulate that, help people get sharp. And it's actually very similar to kind of a, a nicotinic oh, uh, receptor. You know, yep. Acetylcholine and, and nicotine are kind of similar and just creates sharpness and mental acuity. Yeah, the acuity. nicotinic is a type of a, a subtype of acetylcholine receptors. Absolutely. Right. That's why nicotine is such a, you know, separate, as you've written about, is separated from the tobacco, especially tobacco smoking. Sure. Is like, oh, yeah, it enhances. It, it's one of the few compounds ever that we're really sure, and probably we know more than any other compound, enhances, like, it, it's it's a... It's it's a nootropic. I mean, it really enhances learning. Yeah. Not just keeping combating fatigue, like amphetamines and other stimulants are great at like, like if you're so tired you're gonna fall asleep and you need to study by staying up. Yeah, amphetamines and you know all of the stimulants they work great for that. But in terms of truly, if you control for the time spent on task, something that truly enhances learning, I don't think there's anything more solid than nicotine. So anyway, like acetylcholine is like, yeah, so critical to learning. Yeah. You know, when we, yeah. we ran those two studies with the Boston Center for Memory and showed, you know, executive function, you know, peak alpha mm -hmm. state, you know, showed some statistically significant improvements, duplicated that study twice. So there's some cool things that happen and then also some very pleasurable things that happen from neurotransmitter modulation. And I think this is kind of like the one of the first classes of different substances that we're really kind of drawn to. It's like some in some way it's just shifting the composition and availability of our of our neurotransmitters. Yeah, yeah. So the acetylcholine system is inter interesting. Uh, uh, some of the drugs called hallucinogens um, have yeah, anti-cholinergic uh, effects. So it's like scopolamine and atropine. These, this is uh -huh. in like jimson weed and all kinds of like um, belladonna mm -hmm. and a lot of ancient uh, you know, herbs that have been used since ancient times and in and, and modern day, uh, but have never been outlawed because 
Um, like, yeah, not too many people use them regularly. they're a little uncomfortable. They don't a lot com- of those are actually associated with different forms of what would be called brujeria or like sorcery or witchcraft. Oh, yeah. You know, because maybe in just thinking about it, you know, if, if the co- acetylcholine system is helping keep you focused and on task and sharp, oh. if you completely downregulate oh. that, you're going to be like, what? I'm Completely super- dissociated. Like, yeah. yeah. And in fact, remember Sasha Shulgin, the famed psychedelic chemist, he, chemist, he referred to these as the true hallucinogens. You know, as you know, and many people know that, you know, the classic psychedelics, you know, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, aren't you know, they don't cause hallucinations, you know, uh-huh. which the, the, a key to that definition is that that you actually believe the thing is there. Like you see the pink elephant and you think a pink uh-huh. elephant is sure. there. Now, now you, you know, the, the, the these anticholinergics, those are true hallucinogens. I've I mean, never, like, you know, I've, that's the one thing I, I actually, as you make that definition, I've had so many visions. I mean, from spaceships to uh-huh. fucking dinosaurs to whatever you want to, I've talked about all my visions, demons and angels and the whole gamut of everything you could possibly imagine. But I've never had a hallucination because I've never believed that they were real. Well, real in the spiritual sense, right? Like right. This they gets were difficult real in a non-dimensional way, about. right? But not actually real. You know, if we were even if you may not have been able to talk at the time, but if we said, you know, uh, Aubrey, like, do you really, really think it's like at least in this consensus reality? Yeah. <laughs> like, is it really in the room? You'd probably like no, no. Like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't but, like nudge my buddy and be like, do you see that spaceship exact, that was beaming yeah. that light underneath my tongue? No. Yeah. Even though that was real as hell. But there are these you stories. Um, so I think you're a Ram Dass fan, right? Yeah. Like uh, he wrote in, um, was it Be Here Now? It might have been Be Here Now or might maybe it was, might have been another one of his books, like uh, The Only Dance There Is. But uh, the, he relates a story of, of, I think he and a buddy, Ralph Mentzner from the, mm-hmm. you know, from the Harvard group back in the day. And he said they were at a hotel, a meeting, a conference or something. And, and Ralph was in his room and they were on, well, on one of these compounds, some experimental, like highly potent anticholinergic hallucinogen. And someone from the, 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 a lady from the hotel itself somehow came to their room and offered them lemonade. Don't ask me why, <laughs> but she or water, some liquid, and she filled up his glass, and it filled up the glass, and then it overflowed to the floor. And he's like, "This water keeps flowing. It keeps flowing." And like, it actually raised up in the floor, and like raised it all the way. The room filled up and went up to him and Ralph's like necks, and they're like, "Oh my god!" I guess the lady had like left, <laughs> and 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 he was like. What's happening? And I don't know. You know, all of a sudden, then the water started going down. Everything went in reverse, and the water came back up into the pitcher. Whoa! And, and then he was like, "Oh my God, Ralph, did you just see that?" And then he realized, like, Ralph had never been there, and it was just like him, his the, by himself the whole time. So he's like, even these like layers of yeah. coming back, like even like, oh, that person wasn't even there. And I think Sasha Shulgin relayed the story of like. Some of his stuff in his books, it's like you're not sure whether it was him or a buddy of his, and he's c- clever. He was clever about that, but like, yeah, it's like those drugs. It's like you're driving with someone you thought was in the passenger seat, and you're driving into San Francisco, and uh, he's in the lived in the suburbs of San Francisco, and you're having a, this half hour long conversation with him, and then you just realize he was never there, like. <laughs> And of course, when people, when kids usually have tried to like, you know, smoke Jimson weed or like whatever, and a very similar, different mechanism, but similar with Amanita muscaria mushrooms, um, 
a kind of a typical story. And the reason they never need to make these things illegal is that, you know, you wake up a day later in the woods, having pissed yourself, you know, and having yeah. no idea, no memory of how you got there. And you're like, uh, I don't think I want to do that again. You know, I, I, uh, I heard the whole Christmas myth about Amanita muscaria uh-huh. and how this was, you know, for those who don't know, the whole Santa Claus myth, these jolly Siberian hut shamans with the rosy cheeks from taking the mm-hmm. Amanita and the reindeers who they would drink the piss, they would feed the reindeers the Amanita muscaria and it would... It would somehow take out the toxin that's in there. What is it? Muscum, muscarol or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. There's a toxin that, that if you drink the urine. So they were with yeah, reindeers they, all the time. And then it was white and white and red caps. And this whole this whole lineage that, you know, was told by uh, Taro Isokaipala, who was on my podcast. And I looked into it. Rogan loves the story, too. Uh-huh. That and, it influenced the whole Santa the whole Claus, Santa like the Claus, red and the white. Yeah. And they Christmas would give theme, gifts yeah. out of their bag. And they would be jolly because they were high as hell. <laughs> And, uh, uh-huh. and I think it does involve the GABA system, if I'm, if I'm correct yeah, as well, Amanita I think still, does. And multiple compounds, I think, you know, ibotenic acid being, yeah. being one, uh, mucimol, but it's, it's this collection of, of various degrees of toxicity. And that's yeah. the thing, like most, that's where the classic psychedelics, you know, like DMT and LSD, psilocybin, that's where they really distinguish themselves because it's like, most drugs at a at a high enough dose are going to cause psychedelic type effects mm-hmm. where your whole conception of reality in some way shape or form starts to unravel and and radically alter not just you're a little sped up or slowed down or relaxed but the classic psychedelics do that at a dose that like are really safe physiologically yeah. like you don't have to come to close to death like yeah, yeah you're tobacco not, you're will not do anywhere that, near but the LD50 yeah and so some of these compounds like that are a little bit further along that continuum. It's like it's a little sketchier. Yeah, a little sketchier. Yeah, so, I, yeah. so I was, uh, I had a bunch of buddies who were also. We were all in this kind of psychedelic. It was like 2006 to 2010 kind of era, uh-huh. where we were really just like exploring, you know, like trying to figure shit out. But I was a little bit. I read a bunch about Amanita muscaria, so I, I had one of my braver buddies try it. You know, you could uh-huh. buy them for, oh, buy yeah. them for free. Uh-huh. And he took it, and, I, and he was going through this experience, and he was convinced that the Battletoads were here. And the Battletoads was an old, like, old, like, Nintendo game, I think, or, like, arcade <laughs> game. And he's like, the Battletoads, the, what are we going to do about the Battletoads? I'm like, there's no Battletoads, man. <laughs> and he was convinced. And, like, after that Battletoads incident, I was like, nope. Yeah, (laughs) like that was too real for me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that was it's crossed the line from vision. Wasn't like the battle toads appeared and then they told me that I need to love myself more. (laughs) Right, right. there was no no, there was no like message. It was like the battle toads are here and we got (laughs) to deal with it. And I was like, okay, I'm out. Like I'm out. And I think, and also I've talked to people who's and I want to talk to you about this one as well. Like Salvia, oh yeah, has created intense hallucinations for the people who I've talked to. So I've been like, Ugh. Actually did the first uh, blinded study showing any psychoactive effects of, of, sal- of salvinorin A, the active principle of salvia divinorum. And we basically had them smoke it out of a meth pipe and um, went up to doses that were around two milligrams, which is, an inf- which is a really high <laughs> dose. If, like 2,000 micrograms is normally measured in micrograms. Yeah. But yet people at the higher doses in our study were routinely saying that they were communicating with entities. 
Mm-hmm. I'm very, very different, but very DMT-like in terms of the intensity yeah. and the com- the dissociative nature of it. And and there are people that make where it seems it, like it could be therapeutic and it has been therapeutic and and that there are like profound you know insights to be gotten from it. I think those are kind of harder to capture, at least for your average person. Sure. If one is philosophically inclined, if one is a psychonaut mm-hmm. that is used to these waters, like they're probably, and this is my my just my personal assessment, you know, there's no good data in any way, shape, or form on this, but my impression is that one can get, you know, much like a, a smoked DMT experience or 5-methoxy DMT experience, one can get sort of those deeper kind of insights from it of various types, but it's just a little harder for your average person to get because the main response is like, what the yeah. fuck? Like, just, it's so overwhelming. Well, I mean, if it, if people want to just take my own personal feelings to, like, I have been on the psychedelic medicine past 23 years and still, you know, I look at those things and go, mm, not today. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like maybe not, and never, and never have just, and and probably it, there's a deeper trust of myself in those realms. I just have so much trust with the classic psychedelics yeah. that I don't have after listening to the experiences and and being there for my battle toad, you know, the battle toad <laughs> incident with my buddy. That uh, that I've just and I don't really see a purpose for it other than to say, well, maybe I'll trust myself to go into a place where things that aren't real could appear real and see how I navigate that experience. But I would mm-hmm. want. If I did that, you know, I would want all of my best allies to be there. Right. You know, my wife, who's an amazing medicine woman, my, you know, my brother, Kyle, who's like a deeply veteran psychonaut who's had incredibly intense, you know, encounters with what he calls Watiko, which is like the confusing, distorting darkness of the universe that has really had him pump his brakes significantly on any medicine because he's got stuck in different. And so there's caveats everywhere. Uh I mean, Kyle was the bravest of the brave. He did a 30 gram mushroom dose, which kind of kicked off this whole thing. And, (laughs) you know, he'll, he, he's told his own story on about this and, and there's more story to tell is he's still, it's been two years and he's still unwinding some of these challenges. But for this experience, I'd want him there. Oh yeah, I'd want like I'd want to call the Avengers. Allies. I'd want to yeah. call the Avengers, and yes. maybe it would just be hilarious, and we'd all just be <laughs> laughing together. Or, but if I got twisted, I would want Kyle, who's also a giant UFC fighter, black belt, my like one of my best friends in the universe. I'd want him to be able to just hold, hold you, like, hold me. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd like I'd want all bases covered if right. I was going to do this, and I think that's. You know, just allow that to be an ex- you know a lesson for everybody. Is even me with all of these experiences? There's still things that there's no fucking chance I would do them unless I had the very best of the very best there with me yeah. to to like to cover my bases. And there is you know, and I always want to be you know cautious. I don't want to be. I don't like being critical of folks, you know. And so, but what I will say is that some folks might be looking at the other folks that like take everything and they've done all of the alphabet compounds, you know, they've taken 2CB fly and they've taken 5-methoxy DMT and, the, you know, 4-hydroxy DIPT. And it, 
People are but, taking notes, looking but, shit up as you say all these things. <laughs> like, like, here's my audience. Like, Damn it. <laughs> pulling over in their car, hitting rewind 30 seconds, and be like, I, I'm getting tips. These here. are the interesting ones. Yeah, it, it's like to those people who haven't done all, you know, it's like you don't need to be those people. And those people, like, you know, I'm glad there's all types of people in the world. There's the extreme explore. I'm glad there's are people that push, like, that do the crazy, like, do the wingsuits. They mm-hmm. jump off of Totally. You know, I don't want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, me neither. I'm not even sure if I were on a skydive. I, I might be open to that, yeah, but like, but it's like, you see what I mean? Like, not everyone should be like that. And Absolutely. So, and it's the other question is like, have you so have you conquered and explored that whole range of experience that psilocybin can offer? And anyone that really has any idea, sure. like, no, dude. And the thing like, is, is it's like an endless, like, it's know? an endless, yeah. an endless lesson. I mean, even Don Howard, one of my great teachers. 50 years of serving medicine, particularly as a Wachumero, you know, he's like, there's always a deeper layer. It always gets deeper. He still showed up to every one of his ceremonies, thousands upon thousands of ceremonies with Wachuma as a student ready to learn. And he was the greatest Wachumero that I think, you know, our contemporary era has ever, has ever known. He was unbelievable. He revived the ancient Chavin tradition and was really like a torchbearer for mm-hmm. for the really old way of of the Wachuma Masada ceremony, and absolutely just stunning grandfather maestro, you know. But he showed up every time as a student, ready to learn, like ready to learn something new. And so, you know, and he you know he'd had his experience with these different you know different compounds and different things, of course, just kind of peeking his head into it, mm-hmm. but. He was able to continue his path of learning and growth, just sticking with one yeah. and getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. Because there's so much there. It's an infinite amount. That's why, that's why it's funny to me when people are like, still doing psychedelics, bro? You haven't, you haven't learned everything you need to learn? I'm like, no. I mean, the whole world, I, there's right. a whole universe to explore inside and outside. Yeah. Especially you know? if you take that orientation, it's more about you than it is about the other compound. Right. Or about the compound. I'd say, you know, I always think of it as this interaction between two entities. One is this this molecule that, uh, you know, and one is like the, you know, and relatively simple, you know, molecules are simple little things. You could just build tinker toys to represent their shape, right? You know, it's like, the, and the other thing is like the most complex thing we know of in the universe, the human brain, you know, <laughs> and the, the associated human mind. So if that is an interaction between those two things, like what is the heavy hitter? Well, the heavy hitter in that interaction is not the simple little Molly. In terms of creating that particular experience, it was, you know, a part of it, but it's more about what was in here, in here, you totally. know, you know, than it was, you know, about what was in that compound. And so, you know, all that said, I'm glad people have, exp- you know, that people have created, like Sasha Shulgin, I mentioned, and other, you know, great chemist David Nichols. You know, people have created all of these yeah, compounds. Yeah, and then and then that people like Sasha Shogun have taken him and, and described what these are. I think that's important, but you know, not everyone needs to be taking it. every compound. It's you know, Terrence McKenna wasn't a fan of taking like all of these. He said, "Yeah, these things. You don't know what some of them. They're brand new, and it's like, what's it going to do in twenty years?" You know, he says, "At least I know something about psilocybin." You could think about it also. It's sort of like, am I going to get in trouble with this analogy? It's like you know like ladies or, or potential, you know, partners. It's like, there's different models. There's like, there's the quantity model, mm. you know, but that's also, yeah, y- you know, you the go, quality. Can you go deep? Can you go deep with one person? 
Yes, versus you know what it's like to be deeply in love with someone shallowly. for years and years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not. They're different. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can't say that there aren't benefits. Or there's to, polyamory, but, where you yeah. go deep with a couple. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. People. I'd say I'm a psychedelic polyamorous. <laughs> Because really, there's like a few things that I'm really like deepening my relationship with, and it'll uh-huh. evolve. It'll they'll go through seasons. You know, there's like seasons where it's like, okay, and I'll get really clear guidance internally. Uh-huh. Like this is the season where you're here to explore this thing, and then eventually, so like topics or, or no different well, compounds, compounds, or you mean like okay, compounds were okay. giving me access to a body of knowledge and the, internally that it was like this is your this is your study, like this is your course of yeah. study is with this particular yeah. one for this period and, and i think and there's been some and then there's been some where i've tried like for me personally lsd doesn't doesn't agree with me mm. not in a micro dose mm-hmm. not in a macro dose I've, I've tried it multiple times and it's like feels slippery feels like i'm on one of those endo boards where i'm all balanced and all of a sudden i just go whoop and then i'm smacked on like my back I'm like well, how did i get I here the analogy i don't want to it's <laughs> yeah. it felt really slippery whereas psilocybin feels like a steady like driving same with that with like would, would you some people have said lsds they'll describe it as too forceful does that kind of fit with your or is not quite not trying to put it is force it is strong it's i mean i think the non-specific amplifier is is also good it just feels like it's adding a lot of energy to my own psychology which is a little slippery in in its nature you, you might know, have like, enough of your own energy i'm very of course like i'm yeah. very watery very fluid and so and and very yeah. captured by story innately so like when i think lsd amplifies me in that deeper way it's not that lsd is slippery it's that i'm slippery and okay, it's making yeah. it's making that inherent quality of me more active you right. know it's like when people say that cannabis makes you anxious like no it doesn't you're anxious yeah. This is just right. amplifying your right. anxiety. And I think, so I think it's pointing to like an inherent slipperiness that I have with, you know, kind of thought patterns and stories and things yeah. like that. Whereas I feel like some of the other medicines are, I feel like I got an older brother or a father or a grandfather or a grandmother that's helping guide my experience and kind yeah. of keeping me in bumpers. Like I'm in a bowling alley yeah. and I got bumpers and I'm moving around, but I'm heading towards the pins of the insights that I'm looking for. Right, right. Someone's keeping you from going off that cliff if right. you were to veer towards and it. If I'm yeah. do, and if I do go into some crazy, dark, gutter ball scenario, it, there's always a, a purpose for it. I've yeah. always come out of it. Whereas with LSD, I've come out of something like, I gained nothing from that other than I survived it. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't get shit out of that. Whereas I, on ayahuasca or whatever, I've encountered the world crusher who was negotiating for the soul of my father and all of these crazy fucking horrific things uh-huh. stole my heart and gave me a fake one in return and then was like <laughs> i was bargaining with him and then the angels came and said you can't get your heart stolen so i was a whole drama yeah but i finished that and i was like wow that was a hell of a journey i learned a lot from that yeah whereas like with lsd for me personally it's just been like why did we even do that where did right. we go what was going on there mind like <laughs> yeah. What did I what did I learn? Yep. And this yep, is just my end it. of one story yeah. of my own personal psyche. And that, that doesn't disclaim the incredible benefit that so many other people have gotten from it. But yeah. it's about knowing know thyself. Mm-hmm. You know, know thyself and know how these things interact. And maybe one day, uh, you know, through you know, brain scanning, through personality questionnaires, through like, you know, any number of and maybe a triangulation, all of these things, we could say, oh no. Psilocybin is the compound for you. We know that because of the ratio of 
of, 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 of serotonin to dopamine in this area of the brain. Yeah, like whatever it is, like we could and, – and, and moreover, you need this. Like you, you need 23 milligrams, not 25, not 20, 23, you mm-hmm. know, like um, – so yeah, you know, maybe we'll figure out. And I think there's a good chance because pe- man, people have strong opinions. But I mean, you name the compound, they're like, well, you know, like I said, some people say LSD is too pushy. Other people will say, no, it's the exact opposite. Psilocybin is too pushy, and LSD is more relaxed. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know if anyone really calls these things relaxed. They probably <laughs> haven't done a high yeah. enough dose. But um, but nonetheless, they'll say, people say the opposite things about, and it's probably all true. Now, yeah. some of that might be. You know, driven by placebo effect, which is, as we talked about, you know, is, is this miraculous, you know, response. So that's not to be, you know, dismissed. But some of it might be very different uh, differences, you know, real differences, well, very real biologically observable differences in their brain, you know, mm. like you respond better to this compound. Just like for some people, aspirin works better than ibuprofen or, or vice right. versa for a headache. Right. Know? Yeah, everybody everybody in their uniqueness. What is the mechanism of action for salvia divinorum? So it's a kappa opioid agonist, meaning it activates a certain type of opioid receptor. If folks are thinking, oh my God, it sounds horribly addictive. We know about opioids. Well, those are all the opioids that we normally think of, heroin, morphine, oxycodone, which is oxycontin, mm-hmm. you know, Percocet, uh, hydrocodone, Vicodin, you name it, and of course, fentanyl. Those are all mu opioid agonists. That's their primary re- the receptor. So there's different types of opioid receptors, just like uh, the classic psychedelics activate the serotonin subtype 2A, serotonin mm. 2A receptor. Well, there's subtypes of opioid receptors. So this is a pretty pure, the salvia divinorum, the, the main uh, principal uh, act, uh, active compound in it, salvinorin A, activates the kappa opioid receptor. So it's inter- kappa opioid receptor is interesting because it seems to lead to similar sort of analgesia, but it does not lead to, you know, the euphoric effects. Mm. The people have, and companies have developed in the past, compounds are hoping to develop as analgesics, as new pain relievers that were less addictive, that have relied more on the kappa opioid system. But those have been sort of thrown out in clinical trials because like you're doing this clinical trial and this person's like, dude, I'm starting to grow wings here and fly away. Like, and mm-hmm. literally like there's a paper that wrote that. I'm not making that up. Like <laughs> one of these exotic cap opioid agonists yeah. was being developed. And um, so, yeah, you know, so they, they cut the trial or they, you know, reduce the dose, I think in that case. But um, it's a powerful, like, and we don't really know why activating the kappa opioid receptor leads to these sort of extraordinary changes. It may be that a backdrop is when we say what's the mechanism of action of this compound or that compound, there's so many, it's so complex. Mm -hmm. We can talk, what's the receptor that's hit in the brain? That's just the first domino in like this, imagine one of the scenes where the the whole room is filled with all those dominoes and goes up a bridge and they all knock each other over and Mm -hmm. it does a spinny thing and does this. Mm -hmm. It's like like the the brain receptor, that's just that, the first domino. Which is a big deal, and then it's like there's questions about like what are the pro- what are the signaling cascades within that cell within that neuron that has makes it have this effect or that effect once the uh, the the ligand the the drug has attached to that receptor is it going to make it less active more active? But then there's like its effects on other neurons, and then we're talking about the ultimately the system more of the systems level. So it may be that a key common action to many of these broadly defined psychedelics or hallucinogens 
is are there effects on brain network dynamics, which is a fancy way of saying the 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 communication or synchronization of different uh, of different brain areas mm. with each other. So one of the things that's been observed with psilocybin and LSD, and also with uh, salvia divinorum or salvinorin A, the the main uh, agent in, in salvia salvia divinorum, is that there's m- these just massive differences in these communication patterns across the brain. It's less about you know this one particular area is act more active or less active. It's more about oh if you measure that activity or inactivity across the whole brain that all of a sudden there's patterns emerge that weren't there before. There's communication. And that kind of fits with now jumping to the phenomenological, the the subjective experiential level, where it's like it seems like these things are boundary dissolving. It's like I normally do this in my everyday life, but I don't realize how that's so disconnected to with my a life priority that I have or this emotional aspect of my being or this relationship. I we put things into compartments and we get through life doing yeah. that. But it's like it's like all these, you know, depart and, and even at the perceptual level, this, you know, may be consistent with synesthesia, like, you know, hearing um colors, you know, for example, mm. this boundary breaking, you know, this sort of like the brain, you know, acting, you know, communicating more with itself. Uh so that may be, and then you have certain networks that become less, that are typically more active, that are engaged with kind of interpreting consensus reality, and and then there are other, you know, or, or, or you know, that drive you to pay attention. They're active when you're paying attention to something, and then there are other networks that are are dissolved. So it's just massive change, whether it's decoupling certain networks, making certain uh, networks more active. But it seems like there's this radical change in the communication across the brain. Yeah, which is why the what basically to summarize the reductionist approach to understanding these things ultimately fails. And well, not fails, but it actually it's only a small it's, piece. It's a small piece of a more holistic approach because right. psilocybin is interacting with the five HT two A receptors, but it's yeah. also shifting the blood flow in the brain away from the default mode network and into other areas of the brain you know, to a certain degree, right? So it's shifting the communication and also the energetic concentration in different aspects, in different parts of the brain. So- And that might be similar to other compounds or others, and we don't know yet. It may be that if you do some super intense, just non-drug altered state of, like do, maybe that's the same thing that's happening with holotropic breath work when it's really working well. We don't know yet. We haven't done the study, so- Which is, um, which is- which is crazy with all of this. And the thing is, the reason why those studies, studies cost money. Studies are expensive. Yeah. That's and I think one of the yeah. best philanthropic causes out there and and I, is funding, you know, studies that are studying these things. Like what is happening during a holotropic breathwork experience or deep Wim Hof mm-hmm. breathing or there's lots of different practitioners. This is a, a big part of my own personal practice. And that hyperoxygenation, okay, hyperoxygenation, you get that. But what is happening that's causing you to have that deep cathartic experience? Where is it going? Is it from, you know, is it your brainwave state? Because that's another also measure that we're taking a look at that's that yeah. worth taking a look at that's really interesting. And no, and Joe Dispenza's done some work where his most advanced meditators, when they're experiencing contact with angelic beings and angelic mm. realms, they're in super high gamma. Like super, super high gamma. That's interesting. And then one of the most, you know, one of the medicines that I've gotten the most value out of 
is ketamine in the last few years, learning a lot from utilizing that medicine, which is actually dropping your brainwave into, as far as I understand, more of a waking delta. You're getting more activity in the waking delta state. So it's like all the way at that frequency, there's some interesting information available, and all the way at the super high frequency, there's interesting information available. Like on ayahuasca, I felt what it felt like a few times, and on also on NNDMT, smoked mm-hmm. in a different way i felt like my head peeled off in an interesting way like my whole head peeled off yeah and i like my radio frequency was just open to a whole other dimension and i wish i had you know some kind of hookup on my brain that was measuring like what was my brainwave state doing yeah. that like what was actually because why and why was that different than the other 25 times i did ayahuasca right you know what i mean like what happened what happened what switch went on in my brain with the same roughly the same compound that made this big difference and i so i'm paying intuitively i think brainwave patterns also have something a a big piece of this puzzle and i think in the big picture like that's a that's a, a huge point like in moving forward with this science like it's another form of reductionism it's like Kind of like something I said earlier, it's it's not about what psilocybin does. I mean, that's one way to put it, but like, oh, what does the brain, ha- or you could say the brain, or what does the person, what how does their behavior change after the psilocybin? Well, it's more of like maybe, well, what does the brain do after an experience on psilocybin when they're seeing angels, or they're having right. a bad trip, or right. they're just yeah having this like they're dissolved into the nameless for like you name it we can Mm -hmm. go on forever different psychedelic experiences those probably all look very different yeah in the you know and we're not there yet in terms of really and it may be that there's more relationship on certain biological measures and in terms of therapeutic you know uh outcomes between say a psilocybin experience of a certain type and an MDMA experience of a certain type and just a life experience of a certain type or a course of psychotherapy or meditation or you name it, you know, holotropic breath work, Wim Hof breathing, whatever, you know, it, it may be like we're not our reductionist thinking things like, oh, the compound, that's the commonality. Like, well, clearly that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of opening up a wider range of, of, of very extraordinary experiences. But there's probably something very different going on when someone yeah with these very different experiences i mean you could like sometimes people's like blood pressure it's like you know it's going up and the person's like you know they're freaking out you know like they're in a safe environment in the study but nonetheless it's one of those cases where you're thinking oh i'm glad they're here with me rather than on their walking around you know downtown austin you know it's like where like yeah they're really this is putting them in a very you know vulnerable place and then other times you know people are like oh god I'm the, at the most peace you know and their blood pressure is like the cool mm-hmm. you know as cool as a cucumber and they're just like you know same compound yeah the the psychology is different yeah you and, know? and measures like um like the Heart Math Institute is doing about you know like the the, the electromagnetic field of the heart and heart brain mm-hmm. coherence and. There's so many different interesting things that would actually actually need to all be in play right. for us yeah. to really understand kind of what's happening here. The full system, the yeah. Full, and, and, that, and still, even still, there's going to be something something that's part of the mystery. And right. you know, the mystery does not always let us look up her skirt. 
You know, like, like sometimes she's just like, no, you know, like you get, get your hand out of my pants. Uh-huh. I'm the mystery. You uh-huh. just behold. You know? Right, right, right. Just be grateful for what you got. Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, I think just that's a humbling and, and realistic perspective in science in, in general. It's like we're never we're never going to the model. The menu is never the meal. You know, these are all descriptions. We just try to come as close as we can. And whenever you think you've figured out 99% of reality and you're working on that last 1%, it's like, yeah. And so they thought a thousand years ago. Yeah, we always think like, that. Yeah. We always think that. Yeah, so a, a little something left to the imagination is uh, not a bad thing. I mean, it's job security if you're, <laughs> you know, a scientist or a philosopher or, you know. You know so How hey. boring would it be if we got to the answer of all things and everything? <laughs> we figured it all out. Yeah. Like, yeah, he really wanted me to come out there and they have some like, a, he wanted me to be one of the trial participants since they got, oh. and I was like, I would, but it's a kind of a long way to go to just to do DMT. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean, I would say, like if he came here, I'm like, sure. Right, let's go, yeah, that's you know? a. But it's kind of like a hike to get all the way to the UK. Yeah, But yeah. I'm really, I'm interested to see his results, but it's not, to me, it's not as a, it's not as interesting personally, just because I don't feel like a a compulsion to prove whether they are or they aren't. I mean, you know how I, could you ever prove? Yeah. And I, I think mean, it's, I think it's, they're trying to create like, I think it's like, it's more like, a, I want to show that they're real. And I'm like, well, they're real to me. Yeah, and what do we mean? I mean, I'm I'm kind of more attracted to like a Jungian analysis where it's like, I mean, like he said about UFOs, it's like, well, the interesting thing is that not really whether they're real or not. It's like the fact that like a lot of people in the world are reporting these things. Like that's a real thing. Like these experiences are real. And what's that about? You know, so at a certain level, it's not a, I don't know, there is an interesting, you know, kind of like you were saying, you know, that the, you know, the brain waves of someone having an angel encounter experience is like, that's a real experience, no matter what the reality of the angel is or not. Yeah, like certain phenomena like, you know, speaking in tongues, regardless of what you think on the theological aspect of that, that's a distinct state. Something is very interesting going on. Well, let's uh, let's like, talk about this. So we just took a bathroom break. We may roll in with some of our commentary. We were just talking about entities and and my kind of feeling of being like, I, I don't really, it doesn't really stress me out whether you want to think of them as real or not real. I know what those encounters feel like and I know what the value of them are. Mm-hmm. And, and I just have a, a feeling for it. And it's not, I don't feel compelled to try and prove that they're real or not real because I think you're in a you're in a paradoxical bind. You have to expand your kind of whole paradigm and your dimensional understanding of the universe and reality itself in, in an interesting way, which is a more complex kind of conversation. But the experience of contact with energies or aspects of self that are beyond what yeah. the normal is. I've had this with many of my, particularly my female friends and my partner who can, I will watch her access a being or an aspect of her or an energy where she can sing in a language that's a beautiful, impeccable language or transmit in a language where my body, the cells of my body will understand it in a way. Like my best friend, Caitlin, will drop into this 
in for her, it's like the story is more of like a Mother Mary type of energy, and it sounds like an Aramaic language, but even more ancient. And she'll be transmitting something and feeling this emotion, and I feel like she's talking to me about my pain and feeling my pain, and I just start fully sober. If she gets into this, and her hand will be moving in this sign language, and she'll be weeping, and I'll start weeping, and that experience is fucking real to me. Yeah. And whether that's a aspect of her that's latent and part connected to another aspect of her that's in another dimensional reality of the unborn and undying part of her. And I think it really, it, you really have to carve out a whole understanding of the universe to really even make sense of that. But for me, it's like, what did you feel? Yeah. What, what was there for you? Like what happened? And that, when that happens, you know, for her or my wife, you know, it's medicine. Like I just know right. it and I know that that medicine is real. So to me, it's like, yeah, it was real. <laughs> you know, like, but the question of, well, was it light language? Is it a real language? Is it not a real language? Is it the expression of a frequency? Who cares? Yeah. And I think we do a disservice in science when we, we do a lot of this, like we dismiss entire areas because of, of that, at least at that outer layer, you know, like with that, you know, like if you just think it's, you know, implausible and, and it's it's not even worth your time to study an experience like that because clearly like whatever she's not channeling some Aramaic speaker from like whatever whatever the one's interpretation might be if you don't buy into that that the the idea that there's nothing interesting going on there nothing right. therapeutic going that's you know and gosh like this is in part like why psychedelics were dismissed for so long and I think why a lot of the and, and why just kind of a general interest in things that are considered broadly speaking religious and spiritual aren't kind of taken as seriously because we get hung up at that ultimate that ontological reality yeah, and, exactly and as you're aware it's like but something interesting is going on here no matter what your you know whether it's like glossolalia speaking in tongues which sounds very much like it sounds like speaking in tongues like, right. like the same phenomenon maybe of a different variety and like what's happening in her brain like what's is this, you know, is there a, a genuineness that's pouring through somehow that you're getting from her in this kind of maybe more unfiltered expression, again, regardless of any overlay of, you know, any other story around it? Like, it sounds like something very interesting happening there. And the, and the communication that's happening between my psyche and the other person's psyche, like, it's, it's happening in, in, in a magical way. Like, it's, mm. I cannot dismiss... I would be gaslighting myself if I dismissed the magic of the experience. For example, I'll give a very, very recent example. So in my own explorations, and again, I don't recommend this, but you know, I'm prescribed ketamine. I've also justifiably had my own battles with depression and battles with anxiety. Ketamine's shown mm -hmm. some benefit of that. So, mm -hmm. you know, and and Wonder Science has gone through the whole program and have my, you know, have my lozenges and et cetera. But I also use them for my own exploration, as I mentioned, and sometimes pairing with cannabis. And I've talked a bit about that. It's been a really instructive yeah. thing. And I got a clear message on, you know, in a ketamine journey is like, okay, now explore this in combination with DMT. And it was the first time, you know, after a couple years of, you know, kind of deepening my relationship and with ketamine with, and yeah. with ketamine. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, now. And I had never done this before, even though I have access to DMT. And, you know, so I got access to DMT and I went into it and my wife was totally sober and the experience got kind of heavy. It got heavy. 
<laughs> you don't say. Academy yeah, plus DMT. Yeah, it got it got <laughs> it got heavy. And she was in the bathroom and she was just rummaging around, I don't know, getting ready for something or something. Uh-huh. And I just I had my mindfold on and my and my headphones on and I was like, Vilana! You know, and she like comes right over and intuitively she kind of knew and she like put her hand on my heart and she started singing this Icaro. Uh-huh. And she's never sung an Icaro before, doesn't know Icaros or whatever, but she tapped into this frequency of what the perfect thing, and I just pulled my headphones off, and she's just singing this thing in this other language. I'm getting chills now thinking about it. Yeah. In, this other lang- in this other language, but in this tonality that was familiar from all the great shamans I've worked with, Maestro Orlando Chuandama, the Quechua tradition, and you know Don Robert, and all of these great, Maestro Alberto and Maestro Hamilton, all of these different Icaros from the traditional which of course DMT is the main psychoactive component mm-hmm. in ayahuasca, but she just dropped into this frequency and offered this thing for me. And all of that density started to open up into, and the light started to pour through the whole experience. And so like, what is that other than magic? <laughs> you know, like whatever I mean, it was, it was magic. If your brain was being scanned, it probably led to a, an instant and yep. radical change in your brain function at who knows what level, you know, probably many different levels. Uh, so yeah, I mean, is that not real, you know? And, and, and I, you'll like never so be able to tell me you could line up all of the scientists in the world and they could try to tell me that there's some, you know, logical materialist reductionist explanation for it. And be like, uh huh. Interesting. Yeah. And it was magic. Cause I was there, Uh huh. <laughs> you know, and like I, all of everything you're saying may be true. And what I'm saying may also be true that this is inexplicable yeah like something happened in the mystery and maybe like you said maybe in a hundred years we would be able to explain it because we would understand the the resonance field that can be created and the ability for someone to actually step into the energetics and actually transmute something through the energetics of of a listening that happens to something beyond words and beyond just the obvious facial recognition of a of an emotion like you were mentioning like something deeper a deeper listening an old an older deeper more ancient and more futuristic you know understanding yeah. of what's happening is there some sort of sensitivity at a at a layer that we don't understand yet right you know i'm you know i think uh you know again we shouldn't just dismiss whole areas of inquiry you know so all of the psi phenomena you know whether it's you know telekinesis and you know remote viewing and all of this telepathy, you know, in it's what if it's possible that there is some truth to some of this at least, and it doesn't discount the idea that, yeah, 99.9% of fortune tellers are just whatever. They're good at yep. like whatever, reading yep. faces. And, but, you know, if there's a reality there, you know, one could speculate, but what, you know, it's not hard to speculate on mechanisms of like, you know, the physicists talk about these multiple dimensions that we're not sensitive to. And the idea that like Quantum space and time itself yeah. might just be our sort of gooey of interfacing with whatever reality really, really is, <laughs> you know, and I don't know, is there some, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't let sort of like, you know, scientifically, we shouldn't sort of put a label on something and just, you know, basically, you know, call it magic and then allow that to uh, be the explanation that ends our inquiry. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of science, that's that's that just creates a dead end. Like one could still view it as like, 
miraculous and great, but and, and say I'm, I'm never going to figure it out. But I'm just going to work on figuring totally. out what I can figure out. But that's what I think more of what we should. So it's like, is there a layer at some like, was she perceiving something that? I don't know. I don't even want to put the word because I don't want to pretend to know the mechanism, but something that is inexplicable to our modern mechanistic understanding in terms of knowing exactly maybe through the traditions that have used these things that yeah. and and or that like somehow spoke to you in the in the in the way that you know that was going to be helpful to you. I don't know. And and one of the ideas that I think has some resonance with me is so one of the people I've had on the podcast many times, and I always approach all people who you know claim to have any access to some psi phenomenon, whether it's channeling or whether it's in this case I'm speaking about Matthias De Stefano, who remembers his past lives, huh. and I approach that with like, all right, bro, whatever, like uh-huh. I don't, I'm not going to believe. But then when he starts saying things that resonate as true, things that I've found in my own journeys, things that I'm like, fuck, you just described exactly an experience that I had. You just put a framework on it that makes sense. And and then also hearing him sing, you know, bedtime songs that he sung when he was a mother in ancient Chem, which was a in his recollection, a civilization that existed right after the flood that destroyed mm-hmm. Atlantis. Mm-hmm. And he was singing an Atlantean to his to his child as a mother. And he sings that song to me. And it's like, how is this not real? you know, in this, in this kind of experience. So I've come to trust him. I've come to trust it always still with like a little bit of, and he'll even say himself, this is just one, one way to understand the truth. But when he, when he talks about some of the, cause he was there when some of these monoliths were being built and stones that we're mm-hmm. still trying to figure out how the fuck did they get this stone yeah. that was this many tons up this hill from this quarry across this river it doesn't make sense. And he was, you know, he'll have explanations of how they used song and kind of this this ability for people to actually merge their consciousness with the stones and then raise the frequency of themselves, thus raising the stones, and then uh-huh. actually create levity in a material object, things that we can't do now. And I'll talk to him about it. I'll be like, well, why can't we do it now? And ultimately the understanding is, is that the field of belief, just like the placebo effect internally, our own field of belief impacts the matter that's within our body the collective field of belief impacts our ability to affect matter collectively so when you try to study something like this and you have all skeptics who are trying to prove that it's wrong it doesn't surprise me that we can't prove it in that circumstance right and then it requires actually a field of belief that makes it possible now of course that's an easy excuse Right, you know, for everybody to say, "Oh, well, fuck it," you know, like it's not real. It's not real unless you can prove it in the face of it. But if you actually adopt this other principle that the field of belief actually opens the possibility for something to happen, just like the field of your belief opens the placebo effect to change the matter in your body, it starts to it starts to allow some opening to make sense for what could be possible in these particular instances. And then if you want to test it, it points you in a direction like, okay, placebo, well, we can do something to not to, you know, dismiss the placebo effect as any, but we can at least say, oh, how much of it is pure pharmacology versus, right. you know, your intentions and whatnot. And, and like, I think, you know, what you're describing in the, sort of the area of psi research, it's been referred to as like the, well, the two effects, like, I think the sheep and the goat effect. It's like one, it's like, 
certain people they're your sheep they're going to believe whatever but then there's certain there's goats i think that i hope i'm not missing this up they're like mm-hmm. you know no matter what proof you might you know you know put on the table they said bah you know like is that what a goat does that sheep i forget my like animal impressions like uh, my five-year-old's going to be disappointed in me. He's like, Dad, that's not a like goat, but like he's just going to force you to sing "Old MacDonald Had a Farm" like <laughs> yeah, over like, and over again. Let's go do this like, again, Dad. Uh, like, Dad, you got to get this right next so, time. Certain people will dismiss it, no matter what. The whole idea that and and, and yeah. there is this idea that, like you were saying, like whether it's a field or whatever, that if there's not if if the person doesn't believe it's going to happen, that it won't happen. Now. That's really interesting. And if you are a person who's like nerdy and into experimental design and analysis, it's actually a really interesting like challenge. Because if you look at some of that science on these psi phenomena, these people, whether you buy it or not, it's a fascinating – whether you buy that there's ultimately phenomena there that are real, it's a fascinating exercise in scientific understanding because it like – in analysis. Because if, if you take this seriously, then you can set up the conditions like, okay, now let's assess – you know, do it with people that do are open right. to it right. and in people who think it's all bullshit no matter what. And I don't know, you can start to, you know, now yeah. it's a, more difficult if part of the explanation is like, well, the whole world has this vibe now that not right. enough people are, which it sounds like you, that's a little harder to deal with, but it does get you thinking about, well, what if that were, what if it were true, how would we explore the area? Is it do we know that that's not true? And I'm not saying just because we can't prove it's not true doesn't mean it is true. But we also don't, mm-hmm. we don't know that it's not true. Yeah, no, like, it's, 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 I think, and I think the curiosity and the open-mindedness, that is, that's the, that's the essence of science, you know, that we're talking yeah. about over and over again here. And, and that's why it's so refreshing to talk to, talk to you about it is because the ultimate curiosity, it's the humility of Don Howard who is saying, I'm going to go learn from this medicine that I've been you know, working with for 50 years and I'm a maestro of this, but I'm going in as a student. Mm-hmm. And I think the science, all scientists, uh, uh, they can actually get the other, they can go the other way all too quickly. Like, oh, yeah. I know everything that, okay, maybe. But I think that humility to be like, yeah, maybe we haven't, that would be cool to test. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe we don't have the resources and it would be hard to set it up, but yeah, it'd be cool to test. That to me makes me trust scientists and science when they have that open-mindedness. Like, yeah, let's see. Like, I wonder, I wonder what, I wonder if. Yeah. You know, it seems like, that seems like real to me. That seems trustable. Yeah. It, 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 to me, it says people are true empiricists. Like they really are into evaluating the world based on, on evidence. You know, including the evidence of their own experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, and it's I don't know. Science isn't about believing. Science isn't the same as, you know, materialism or a philosophy of, you know, any sort of these like you know philosophies of what's the ultimate nature of, of everything. Um, you know, science is a way of going about like answering or asking. That's the main point: asking questions and trying to figure some things out and to just kind of dismiss, you know, entire topics because they're kind of outside of that Overton window, which is mm-hmm. like, you know, which is in politics, like certain things are just like beyond the pale. It's like that mm-hmm. that's not going to work. So we just can't go there, even though if most of the people in a certain party or whatever or group believe in it, they're like, it's just not realistic. But there's 
all kinds of stuff that are like that. And what humbles me is that psychedelics were in that spot for decades. Yeah. And so then I, I think, what else is out there that everyone dismisses and laughs at and, and ridicules, you know, as unscientific, as like wishful thinking that might, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years from now, 200 years from now, or is just viewed as like this world changing, you know, this paradigm shift discovery, like. Yeah. And just to look at the history, I mean, it's, I mean, nutrition, I I think, you know, thank you for reading my book and you've referenced it a few times on the day. You know, I talk about how there was a big shift where everybody was saying, you got to remove all the fat from everything and let's just replace it with sugar. Oh yeah. Disaster. (laughs) Great idea. Disaster. And then fast (laughs) forward and all of a sudden butters on the cover of Time Magazine and being like, is this actually healthier than vegetable oil? And obviously all of the research now is coming out and saying, Yes, even though you'll still have strange outlier, you know, usually government nutritionists will be like, no, Lucky Charms are better for you than eggs. Right. And you're like, what? I reposted something that showed that. It was like frosted mini wheats were like way healthier than an egg. And I was like, what are you talking about here? You know, but but ultimately the the science, the science shifted dramatically. Oh, yeah. Dramatically. And it's not that I, it's just, it's not actually that the reality shifted. It's just that our understanding of the <laughs> yeah, reality like, shifted. Now sugar is bad for you. It was good for you back then. Now, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, yeah. Th- th- it's absolutely. And then it's it, it's again humbling. Think about like what causes that. As we know, there like there were like real financial incentives. There was mm-hmm. you know, like you know, industry interactions. There was like the funding of science. And I tell you what, because I've been funded by NIH for like about twenty years. Uh, and doing various, not just, you know, not psychedelics, but recently with psychedelics, but just studying all kinds of stuff about drugs. Like there are certain things that are just in fashion and that fall out of fashion and people pay attention. They know if this is something that the director of an NIH institute is not into. And there are certain things that are like career killers, like that drive, like it's so hard for the public to understand like, like how that could like completely drive a narrative how that could end up with decades of like a, an american diet that has killed countless yep. people and and with the idea that it was originally based on on science and people these the contingencies are so complex and and and, and real i mean people are concerned about their careers i mean there was st- stuff like memory training research and i did so i got a grant i got a five-year grant like millions of dollars to like study like if you can get opioid and cocaine users to just do these memory games are we gonna you know the reason that people and i never bought into this enough but like whatever i thought there might be something interesting there and there's also value in showing that something doesn't work but this idea that the reason people can't stop doing cocaine is because the cocaine has made them so stupid that they can't you know, listen to the therapy and understand it. Like that's literally like millions and millions and millions of dollars were spent to explore this. And it was all garbage. I mean, it didn't. And again, there's nothing wrong with like at least testing something to show that it doesn't work. But like that was so pop. And then then it fell out of favor. You know, like there's Mm -hmm. these trends that just don't make, you know, like to me that never really made, in a sense, I mean, gosh, I've known plenty of people with problems and it's like, even if there's some correlation with, with in, I mean, some of the smartest people in the world are addicted to you, know, you name it. Sure. And it's not that, like, whatever. Like, is it knocked off one or two IQ points? Like, whatever. That's the main thing is they're, 
their whole life has been drawn into this pattern with yeah. this like more exclusive focus on this thing that's been detrimental to them. And and anyway, the the yeah, there are these narratives that just take off and and you're afraid. Like certain things you just know it won't get funded. And then at another level, if you study certain things, ooh, this is gonna be my reputation. I'm never gonna get funded. Right. I mean, right. like it's hard to I mean, I've I've had more colleagues than I can count that have been, you know, sweated and, you know, they, they've had to leave a, a place like Johns Hopkins. It could, like, they're brutal. You lose your, you could be bringing in funding for years and years and years and they take huge chunks of it, of course. And, and, and then you, you, you know, you go without some grant funding for a few months and all of a sudden they make you reduce your salary and all this stuff. Like, yeah, it's really, you don't want to run out of funding as a scientist and like, yeah. you'll study any asinine thing. <laughs> That you wouldn't even put bets on, you know, just to keep yourself in the game. Yeah, you know. Course. I mean, I'm glad I studied the memory stuff because now I'm, I'm able to study psychedelics. It kept me alive <laughs> yeah. as a scientist, you know. Like, but people don't understand the mechanisms to the full extent, right? And we like got it. Much they're there, it, which really annoys me when people, as much as I, gosh, don't misunderstand me. It's like the environmental crisis is real, you know. Uh, but when people you know try to convince others like ninety nine percent of scientists, it's like oh god, ninety nine percent of scientists thought the Earth was the center of the universe at one point. Like this is not <laughs> how you make a scientific argument. Sure, and also like, like you have to recognize that if you come out against something, then there again the cascade. Are you going to be cast out by your peers? Are you going to be denied grants? Are you going to be? There's just so many forces. Yeah. Of a, of a big system like this. It almost feels like the only egalitarian way to do this would be to crowdfund everything, you know, just have like upvoting, like you mm. would see in like a fucking Reddit post, like let's upvote these studies. And of course, then there'd be people campaigning and gaming that, but at least right. in some <laughs> yeah. way, like it feels like, like democratizing, democratizing funding in an interesting way where people were like able to support, yeah. you know, seems like a healthier way to do this than a, the more centralized focus where you got a big pool of cash and then you're just fighting to try and get the right, right approvals for that cash rather than just but it's it's happening you know i've i've helped fund some different studies myself and and i think the private sectors it's an important role that the private sector can play in actually funding things that wouldn't get grants absolutely i mean just uh i mean just the, the the leverage that you you have, especially at, at times when there is that window where there's something really going on here, but yet the world hasn't quite figured it out. Like the government's not funding it yet. I mean, this is the way Tim Ferriss put it with, you know, funding a lot of the psychedelic, you know, research uh, that like, yeah, imagine the, if you really are concerned about having an impact, one could step in with with a, you know, an amount of money that, you know, thrown into, you know, you could throw it into all kinds of great things, into c cancer research and, but, you know, and it would hopefully have some incremental, you know, it add to this, you know, but it's not going to move the needle. Not that those areas don't deserve to be focused on. It's not going to, given the nature of, of understandable attention those areas have, but like you put that same relatively small amount of money into something like this, like at this point in time, and it's like, whoa, you're really, you could, you could draw a direct line in a few years. It's like, okay, these compounds have now been approved and they're helping like whatever, how many people with these disorders we now understand. I think the scientific discoveries are just yeah, going to keep mounting just aside absolutely. from therapeutics, just an understanding like this. 
the nature of the mind. And I did a podcast with uh, with John Dean, who's done some research on endogenous DMT. Yes, I, I've seen. I saw part of that. I think. Yeah, uh, it was really interesting, and yeah. he has a uh, you know his ultimately his hypothesis is that DMT, endogenous DMT, is actually what helps us build our understanding of reality. It's he's likening it to a neurotransmitter because he's been able to isolate and find you know, quantities in the cerebral spinal fluid in different amounts, way higher amounts. And of course, it degrades very quickly when you try to actually yeah. measure it. So they've had to use very specific, you know, methods to actually measure this. And then he's having some theories about how DMT actually helps us create our understanding of reality. Because of course, as we know, everything that we think of as solid is actually just particles moving around yeah. at certain densities and certain vibrations. And it's all emanations of light or vibration or all of these things. But what's making us see reality? It's like, well, maybe DMT is the neurotransmit is a quote neurotransmitter that's actually helping us build this reality. And those studies, hmm. studies have been, you know, not that expensive, but interesting. And then open up possibilities like, okay, what, what's the next one? Like if like what's the next one we can do to build on that because it opens up a whole new blue ocean if you were going to use a business terminology yeah. like a blue ocean of science of right. what that could ultimately lead to that could ultimately have some impossible benefit down the road right right this like this very very kind of basic level of like the human organism as an interface with reality we've just thought we you know. Implicitly, we just assume we're in this like, you know, Newtonian universe mm -hmm. where it's like, here's the backdrop and all these things are in my, we're part in, you know, within that thing. And it's like, we know that's not the case in terms, you know, broadly speaking, in terms of, of science. It's just like, there's this one big system that we're part of and it's like so incredibly complex. But, you know, we don't, you know, we know that, you know, as you see, you know, like, you know, it's not color, it's like, you know, wavelengths of EM weight, like <laughs> right. what is really reality? Like, there's no sound, <laughs> right. there's no, and apparently then like time and space itself may be in that same category. Sure. Of, like that's just our psychological interpretation of this thing, whatever it is out there. And so I don't know, psychedelics do like, hopefully they can be tools to, you know, to understand how, you know, not just like the therapeutics of psychedelics, but like how do we, how do we create this psychedelic experience? Our everyday reality is a psychedelic experience. Like, and there's a there is a modulation of reality. Like, why do we think this is real? And then, and then we do something like we sleep, or we take some you know crazy compound, or we do, or we breathe really heavy, and all of a sudden, the idea that this is real, like we start to reevaluate that, like, mm. and see that as kind of like this kind of trivial thing. Mm -hmm. What's really real is something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's like. What's going on there? And, and and to what degree that type of thinking has been going on? Has has an evolution maybe involving DMT? Is that involved with like when the, you know the, when the tribe gets together and has these rituals that create that social cohesion that you know convinces people to yeah jump to the front when the enemy village attacks or to you know go on the hunting mission you may not come back from because the you know the tribe depends on it. Like to what degree has that sort of like reality making mm. like been a, a very real you know you know uh it, it's been real fodder for natural selection sure you, you know that I, yeah it's all it's all incredibly interesting and also the the correlation we talked about holotropic breathing you know also showing the correlation between that wim hof deeper breathing techniques the hyperoxygenation and mm -hmm. the 
upregulating of endogenous DMT, like how much is actually produced in that. So that could explain some of these things. It starts to melt different boundaries of reality and different wall. It's so interesting to actually start to explore that. And I think mm-hmm. so as we as we're wrapping up this podcast, I'd like to ask two questions. One is what study has happened that comes to mind, or if there's two, that's fine, that recently you've been aware of that you found particularly interesting, either from a therapeutic standpoint or otherwise, um, that you could share the results of. And then if you had a magic eight ball of unlimited funding, what thing would you like to study? If you could just be like, all right, I got unlimited funds. So something that's happened and something in your fantasy world of something you'd like to study. Yeah. So gosh, there's so many things I could name. One thing that comes to mind and it hasn't been there have been some very early results, but it hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal that stays ongoing. But my p- colleague Peter Hendricks at University of Alabama, Birmingham, is studying psilocybin in the treatment of cocaine addiction. Mm. And sounds like there's something going on, like it's working with people. And if that ends up working, that's just going to be a game changer for addiction. It's like hundreds, I'm talking hundreds of compounds, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent trying to find some medication that at least take the edge off of cocaine addiction to help people. It's pretty much been a big fat nothing. Mm. Um, and so if if there's really something there, so I really want to encourage folks to keep their, you know, their eye on that, on that work. Um, you know, hopefully it's, yeah, going to wrap up and I don't, I'm not sure within the next year I would imagine. So that's that's something I'd really encourage people to, to, to keep their eye on. Because um, cocaine it, addiction is is pretty of all the addictions, it's pretty detrimental. Oh, it's. I mean, it's one of. I'm look. I'm a look. I've experienced a lot of different drugs, and I I don't have a judgmental attitude. I just think of these as ways to modulate mm-hmm. the system, and I don't have the puritanical mm-hmm. or government enforced ideas about it. So if cocaine was something that I liked, I would do it every once in a while for sure. I fucking hate it. It's the worst. <laughs> it's like I feel really cool for 10 minutes. I talk too much. And then I will reevaluate my life for the next two days afterwards. It's like the worst. And I and I you know this is just again my experience. So I so I don't I don't touch right. it. Like not I'm not even fucking interested in that particular in that particular drug. But I've seen how that one in particular, and I'm not around a lot of heroin users. It's just not part of the, right. and I also never, you know, even experienced that or, or dared to endeavor to experience that. Although probably in the right setting, in the right, I would probably smoke a little opium just to kind of get mm-hmm. a vibe of it. I would probably explore that if I had the chance. Never have, but um, but carefully, because I think all of these things are slippery slopes. But nonetheless, yeah. the point being that those people I've seen with cocaine habits and behavior on cocaine and also the deterioration of life on that, it's a steep decline and it's, right. it's, it's a heavy cost. Yeah, not everyone. Not you know, everyone. Like most substances, like, actually like all substances, most people that try it don't become addicted. But if you're in that 20-some percent that does go on, like, like how bad does it look if you go to the end when it gets how bad is bad can bad get it looks really really bad with cocaine and it looks really really bad with methamphetamine even yeah, for sure and drugs are so different i don't want to get into the they all have their ups and downs and but sure the, the the risk of acute like lethal overdose is higher on opioids 
opioids, particularly these days with all the fentanyl derivatives floating around and, and the opioid supplies. But barring, you know, if you're one of, you know, uh, if you're not one of those folks that like whatever just goes out on a single, you know, you know injection of, of an opioid, um, you know, the like you're going to be healthier than the the cocaine or methamphetamine users, like it's just like those are really hard drugs on the body. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not saying any of this is good. Like I'm not yeah. encouraging any of it. And also, but and cocaine also, is particularly and also deadly hard. when you like you do too much and you want to come down, and then you take some a bunch of benzos, and then you start to create that crossover of moving your body up really high, and then trying to move your body down, and that's when a lot of people die. Yeah, it's usually combinations uh, of things. It's it's uh, yeah, you know, benzos are a lot of people don't talk enough about that. Like a lot of the opioid lethal overdoses combinations with either alcohol or benzos, and and sometimes mm-hmm. like stimulants like like cocaine. But the, even the nature of people trying to like, there's something so reinforcing about cocaine. Like in in animals, like rats, like there's nothing like it. You know, if you want to get an animal, just like press that bar. You know, you know, even to the degree that we'll stop eating, like cocaine yeah. is your like nothing will well, come you, as close. I mean, you see it at a cocaine. party. Like someone has a bump of coke, and the coke runs out. They are running around like a zombie looking for brains. Yeah, you know, it's like who's yeah. who's got the next fucking bump? You know, yeah. and, and you're like, and if for me, you know, there was I used to be at more parties where that was more prevalent. Mm-hmm. You know, and I still again that was not my vibe. And I would prefer like a little bit of psilocybin and have some mm-hmm. beers. And and I would watch people on cocaine and be like, fuck it, the zombies. Like, <laughs> like what is going on? It was like I had this like like interesting purview of like this like kind of glossy. Yeah. And again, that's not everybody. I don't want to generalize. And I'm sure people, some people have healthy relationships. Right, right. Certainly when I've gone to the Sacred Valley in Peru, I, I drink plenty of coca tea and mm-hmm. I've had some mambe which is the coca leaf ground uh, totally yeah. different experience right. and actually isn't even that particularly stimulating in general because I think there's so many different alkaloids, oh, yeah, so many alkaloids in, co- yeah. in coca helps you um, with like the elevation sickness and all yeah. of that yeah. but I guess the, the long this is the longest way of saying uh, it's a big deal what yeah. you, the study that you're talking about it's a big deal yeah, yeah. it's a big deal I think it would be a huge game I mean kind of like the ultimate if if something's effective and, and the hope what I was always interested in with 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 psychedelics and addiction is that it the stories that people tell are not about you know it it's not like a crutch to overcome this or that addiction it's people get to the bottom of what it is to be addicted that the thing that cuts across whether you're talking about tobacco or right. cocaine or opioids or you alcohol you name it and it's and that's the heart of addiction if we if addiction was about just overcoming physical withdrawal, we would have solved addiction, <laughs> you know, almost a hundred years ago when we were doing crazy shit like putting people in comas on purpose for a month. Like you'll get past withdrawal, or which I put in the same category, pretty much going to a club med type resort where it's it's easy not to do coke when you you're on a beach and you're being fed you mm-hmm. know, like lovely food and there's lovely people around you treating you like awesome. You know, it's like yeah, now you go back home. What's the first thing you do? Right. You know, so it's. You name the drug, whether it's, again, opioids or cigarettes, how many people have relapsed far after the physical withdrawal has gone? You know, they relapsed a month later, six months later, 20 years later, you know. And so it's not like the physical dependence is just so many of our treatments are just uh, addressing that part. And that's not whether it's nicotine patch or whatever or methadone. And not to knock these tools. I think they all have their place and a lot of people have been helped. But 
to the degree that they're very limited, where people aren't helped, it's like that those deeper questions that a good psychedelic experience seems to help people with that, you know, like, what's the story of your life? What's ha- what's really, really happening here, big picture? And how is this, like, whatever, this thing, whatever you want, cocaine, yeah. tobacco, how is it really fitting into that? And when you know, it's like square in the face, you know, like a lot of people are like, like whatever, they have this clarity it. that sticks with them. And my God, what is that? You know, so that to me is like, we're making real progress. If that works for cocaine, which again is kind of, you could argue the ultimate test because mm-hmm. there's nothing that really comes close. Like that would just be a real game changer for, uh, for not just treating, but understanding addiction. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's two models that really... I appreciate, and I haven't been particularly prone to classic addictions, though tobacco is a pretty regular, I do hoppe and I do tobacco pouches and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I feel like I've never felt like I needed to, you know, it was just like this part of my med, this part of my like practice and I have, feel like a good relationship with it. Mm -hmm. But, but again, but, but everything else, I almost have like an anti-addictive quality where it's like, if I do it for a while, like I don't want to do it anymore. Right. Like I, I drink, I yeah. start I drink a night and like, I don't want to drink the next night or the next four nights. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's just my natural psychology, but so I don't have the most personal experience with it, but I, there's two models. Of course, Gabor Mate, who I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with, oh, yeah. uh-huh. you know, addiction is an attempt to solve a problem and he usually mm. links it to some kind of trauma, uh, trying to yeah. solve a yeah, traumatic often, problem. Yep. But another, another kind of model that, um, you know, one of the one of my teachers, uh, Rabbi Mark Gaffney, has been, you know, talking to me about is like, it's an attempt to solve the feeling of emptiness that we feel from not being engaged in his language erotically with life, hmm. with not being That's participatory in Shekinah in the in this kind of field of eros, which is in the food we have, in the conversations yeah. we're in, in our contact yeah. with life. So we'll choose things that bring what he calls pseudo eros which is like a feeling of connection to life again Mm. so alcohol allows us to connect with the moment or the music or our friends or you know nicotine allows us to connect with our work or Mm -hmm. you know cocaine allows us to connect with us feeling confident about ourselves whatever the thing is it's about there's a sense of emptiness and then there's this mechanism that's like allows you to feel the contact that we crave as a response to the emptiness we feel. So even if it's not trauma-based, it's like, can we deal with the emptiness and do we have the skills and strategies to make contact without exogenous substances right? so that we fill the emptiness with the fullness which is available in life? So I think somewhere between those is my own kind of understanding. And I know it's a complex and nuanced field and there is physical dependency, all that, but... Both of those models really make a lot of sense to me. And progress with psychedelics, I think, can be like with a lot of things. It's like not just them as tools, but if we, if they can be tools to help us not just directly treat, but to understand the nature of these things, like you described with addiction, that's going to end up helping a lot of people. And that's what I think is even bigger. Like what psychedelics can really teach us about the, you know, uh, human, you know, condition. Which is why I think a lot of the things like to your other question of like what's what I you know do and like I you know I think it's uh so many of the 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 questions there like what would the ultimate I don't know like some of the stuff we've talked about here some of these kind of extraordinary claims of you know Mm -hmm. psi phenomena telepathy like that would be a really interesting area to to really jump into 
you know, deeply with psychedelics because there's very interesting anecdotes of, of you know, um, of, of these types of experiences being enhanced or more likely with psychedelics. Yep. Again, don't know whether it's true or not, but if it's testable, you know, I think I think it's interesting and like what's going on there. Even what, even if it's not, if it doesn't, and even if there's no there there, <laughs> it's still really interesting because like. There's the phenomenon of people thinking that there's something there, and is mm-hmm. are psychedelics more likely to make people buy into you know something that maybe not is not there? So even at that level, it's interesting. Yeah. But what if there's something there too? Right. right. <laughs> and what if psychedelics really are somehow opening, like dissolving boundaries at some layer we're not even aware of yet? And then other some maybe a little closer to Earth uh, out there and there just. The effects on neurological conditions. So all of the what we know, we know psychedelics. A lot of them induce neuroplasticity in rats. Mm-hmm. Um, probably true in humans, although we don't know. So as you know, a lot of athletes claim that you know psychedelics have been helpful in recovering for injuries. So injuries yeah, like neurological. Sure. So like you know sports with head impact, like combat sports. All the combat. I mean, it's and, been it's been shown it that uh, psilocybin is does. Uh, promote neurogenesis, right? Like the repair of repair of the brain. So different types of uh, there, there's there's more evidence for and ultimately doesn't really matter. So different types of neuroplasticity, which is a more general term. So uh-huh. that could mean branching of new uh, growing new branches off of the same neuron. It could mean synaptogenesis, which is those branches forming connections with other existing neurons. And it could be, and there's some evidence, but not as much as with the other areas that neurogenesis that's the birth of new cells new neurons so mm. yeah it appears that just it seems no question that neuroplasticity multiple forms of neuroplasticity are unfolding now that said just more neuroplasticity isn't always a good thing i mean i don't know like growing new cells isn't always a good thing sure it's a type of that we call cancer you know so you know but it is like very intriguing that maybe that might be underlying some of this radical learning that people are having and maybe that you know, people claim these insights that change their lives, and maybe part of that, you know, can account for. I, I mean, there's athletes that claim just cognitive, their memory is just a lot better um, since they've been, you know, using psychedelics. No doubt. And or if you're like, like what's, you know, or if you're like my buddy Aaron Rodgers, maybe you win two NFL MVPs after your first <laughs> ayahuasca experience. You know, like obviously you can't. There's no way to. That's the thing. There's no way to test. There's no alternate multiverse where you test Aaron with the ayahuasca experience and Aaron without. Does he win right. two MVPs with and without? Of course, you can't split test that. It's one person's life. Right. You know, but it's, uh, yeah, it's certainly interesting. And you could develop studies where you did measure career performance or you did measure athletic performance, you know, and something like that, like after right. intensive psychedelic treatments. You know, I mean, I was, look, I was, I was in, the, I was a part of a ceremony where, and I won't mention who it is, but a you know kind of mid-ranked uh, UFC fighter was who had no title shot you know planned or anything like that. He was a couple fights away from a title, at least two fights away from a title shot. Goes into a DMT ceremony. In the DMT ceremony, he sees himself holding the belt, the championship belt. He's like, I fucking saw it, bro. Like I saw it. I saw. I could feel it. I felt how heavy it was. Uh-huh. I felt it. I saw it. And then, and then, and then, so the person who was fighting the champion in his division got injured, had to pull out of a fight. He gets last minute called up. 
He's like a nine to one underdog. I shouldn't probably say exactly how people would find to figure this out. He's a <laughs> strong underdog in this, has the fight of his life, you know, as an underdog and wins the championship, you know, and he fought unbelievable. And so there's so many interesting things that, yeah. that are happening that are not medical related, but performance related. And, and, and it, like he credits, he credits a lot of that. Of course, he's a great fighter. He trained hard mm -hmm. and he, busted his ass and right. all those things are all true yeah but he had such unwavering belief because he'd already felt himself with the belt right so in those moments where it got tough and it got he's like i've already seen this reality like i've yeah. seen the ending of this movie now i've just got to play out the you know right. play out the middle part the how and the when and and so like it's really interesting to to start i would love to see some of those to start to dispel some of these myths yeah about about like what it's going to do like it it could make you better at whatever it is that you're doing you yeah, know start that's time like and start times off the blocks interesting studies like this for athletes i don't know this is just a curiosity that's coming to my mind like what about your what about your start times off the block if you're like a sprinter yeah something you know very I mean? something very measurable but, yeah. like all right now you're on psilocybin now you're on lsd and like now like what's your what's your fucking reaction time in this, I don't know, is that useful for the world? Kind of, because it kind of just starts to dispel are these myths that we have about this is something that makes yeah. you crazy and and doesn't isn't helpful for performance, and you got to stay focused. But like, what if what if your career is better? And we hear many of these stories about psychedelic experiences opening up different fields of technology and Steve yeah. Jobs oh, talking yeah. about all of this other shit. The internet. The internet, yeah, all <laughs> of this like other stuff. Open source but software, yeah. It would be really curious to me to start studying these things that people would be like, that's an interesting study. Like sprinters off the block, like yeah. what's happening there? I think that's fascinating because we know that setting goals is powerful and there's some science, but not, but in everyday life, we all know, you know, like yeah. it's just this insane, you know, so was he, was, was he seeing into the future? You know, maybe. Um, or, you know, may, at another level, maybe he's uh, just had such that the, the thing I'm sure all, you know, world-class athletes try to do, you know, is like, you got to believe it. You got to envision. But like, belief. he's like, no, I was there. Like all <laughs> yeah. the regular, this is not regular pep talk. This was like. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can hold, I mean. It, with that in the in your mind, I mean, I, I say this with like addiction. These experiences can be so deep. It's like in that one weakest moment when you've had a couple of drinks and you think, oh, maybe I'll have that cigarette again. You know, in your very weakest, those split second decisions, like those microseconds in like, you know, in the octagon where someone's like, I can't do it. I'm going to like, mm -hmm. this guy's taking my head off. I'm done. You know, it's like, like where it's just like, you're going to go further mm -hmm. into the impossible. It's like, yeah, I mean, in front of <laughs> countless people, and like, I know. with your entire reputation, and and just to that more solid vision mm -hmm. is able to just per allow you to persevere. I mean, that's amazing. If we figure something out there, it's like, yeah, it's like it may not be DMT, it may be something else, but like, what's happening in the brain? Where what's happening to the per like? Right. If we can harness that, okay. Now it's like maybe the goal is like going into negotiating a, a peace deal. Mm, you know totally. or, or or solving you know uh, totally. you know and a solution a, to a there's famine. a track that there's a track that guides you in and of course yeah. this is old 
you know, wisdom of Yeshua, pray as if it has already been done. The idea is that you're not asking for something, you go to the reality where it's already happened. Mm. It's all of mm-hmm. Dr. Joe Dispenza's work. It's all this idea of how to actually harness the placebo effect, which is believing that you're already healed or believing right. that yeah. this thing is done and using these psychedelics to like on a track with some guidance, you know, again, having instead of just a, a performance coach, which there's plenty of life coaches of all sorts, you know, in this field saying like, okay, yeah, all right, maybe you're here to, you know, work on this addiction, but also what's that, what's that big hairy dream of yours, that goal that you want, like, and let's see yourself there. And then let's see yourself taking every step that you need to. And in these altered states, maybe with the increase in neuroplasticity, maybe with the modulation of somehow that the ability to see it more clearly and the confidence to believe it, maybe, maybe it's a serotonergic confidence or a dopaminergic concept, who knows? But whatever it is, you just get this solid belief and it just starts changing people's lives or or, or working through different patterns they have. Like I get really angry when my partner does this and like go in and like, all right, so this is going to happen again, but now we're going to write a different story Yeah, and you're going to respond this way differently, almost like hypnosis, but without hypnosis, you know, it's like, like you're just working on the field of belief. Yeah, That's really interesting to me too. We need a bottle that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, for sure. Yeah, any progress we make in these areas, because it could, it's widely applicable. Yeah. Including totally. to all the things that we need to do to make this world a better place. Yeah. All right. Well, one final caveat, please don't take this discussion and do any drugs or medicine without really being deeply called to it, mining all of the boundaries of safety and also minimum effective dose. Be very mindful and be mindful of legality. Be mindful of everything. We are not recommending that you do any of these things that we talked about just because I did it. Doesn't mean that you should do it. Everybody's different. So please, please, please be mindful. This is not a recommendation to do any of these things. That is your choice. And you have to make that choice. So I want to make that very clear. And then I also want to make it very clear to you that I'm an ally. If you ever need anything, if there's a funding for a crazy thing, if there's a way that I can support the work that you're doing or a work of a colleague, like... Thank you, you can count on me to to spread the word and, and show up in support because I deeply believe that as psychedelic medicine has helped me, it can also help so many people in the world when done the right way. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Yeah, it's been amazing. And thanks everybody for tuning in. So much love. Bye. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Matthew Johnson. If you are interested in joining us in Sedona for our next and final Fit for Service Summit of the year, head to fitforservice.com and you can check out the Sedona Summit. It's going to be pretty epic. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.